I think it's going to be worth your time. I think that it's totally listenable, and it's another deep dive into the world of Stephen King. So these episodes tend to be kind of popular, so uh, all those King fans out there listening, welcome to Rank and Review. If it's your first episode of Rank and Review, you should go in understanding that there are going to be spoilers for the films being discussed, and there will likely be some coarse language from me. Thank you so much for listening to Rank and Review. Please check out the website at rankandreview.ca and send any feedback to rankandreview at gmail.com. That's R-A-N-K-N-R-E-V-I-E-W at gmail.com. I was just going to say welcome to Mr. Jason Debray. <laughs> Regular guest of Rank and Review and host of the Shelf Shedding Movie Show. Uh, congratulations on your podcast and thank you for returning to Rank and Review, good sir. I need to thank you for being a guest on the Jeff Bridges Show and uh, coming in in the early days here and being very supportive of my endeavor. I'm still trying to work on getting a, a bit of a bigger audience and get it onto iTunes and some other platforms, but uh, I'm having fun doing it and that's the main thing. And that's what you should focus on. I mean, I look at this as my hobby. Like, movies is all, have always been my sports, as I've joked in the past. And I have slowly, ever so slowly, got, a, like, a, a small audience. But, like, I enjoy doing it. And I like, you know, I like knowing that there's at least some people out there. And I just like talking about movies, and that's, that's why I do it. So I would be talking about movies anyway. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> Uh, the first time you were on Rank and Review was episode 81, and we talked about Stephen King. This is the 169th episode, and we're going to talk about Stephen King. <laughs> uh, we have three miniseries and three features to talk about here. Uh, sort of various degree of production value and sort of scope. 
we have yes. like an adaptation of a very sort of basic revenge short story from Nightmares and Dreamscapes, and we have an epic adaptation miniseries of The Stand, one of his like biggest doorstop novels ever. And uh, we're going to talk about sort of the the weird dichotomy of trying to do a Stephen King movie for you know television in the 90s where there was a lot more safeguards in place and insert you know commercials here and it's weird talking about like the Tommy Knockers and the Stand and Storm of the Century how crazily dated these movies feel even though they're not that old something about the full frame and the insert commercial here and like it makes it feel like I'm watching an old serial of Buck Rogers or something thing like it feels like this artifact of a lost time already the 90s were not yesterday but it's it's surely not an ancient past like it's not a lost age i i, I feel like it was yesterday that i was watching the stand for the first time uh in the basement of my parents house uh, because that was just such a big event to me that they were going to do some sort of a film version of the stand and that it was going to be this epic four-part. Now, nobody thinks about that. Like, these HBO miniseries have ten parts or whatever. But at the time, um, I think the only other miniseries that was given that much network time uh, before it was Roots, which is um, a pretty important uh, that, moment in television history. Uh, but at the time, too, just the budget of it, like, now we wouldn't flinch at it, but the fact that each episode was like a million and a half dollars... At the time, that was ridiculous, right? And what if nobody watches? Well, of course they will. Um, but it's just different approaches because we have three movies that are feature films that can sort of, you know, bare their teeth and do sort of the aggressive king subject. And then we have a bunch of them that are on one hand hogtied by what they're allowed to show us, but on the other hand have all the time in the world. And there's a trade-off there. Would you rather see a Stephen King miniseries or a feature film, or do you figure the subject sort of dictates that? The subject dictates it. What I'd like to see, and I might at points recommend remakes, which we've talked about remakes. I'm starting to come around to the idea that something should be remade. And in a Game of Thrones, maybe multi-year HBO type of format, or... Uh, I know you hate the streaming services right now, but something like that where um, where you can get away with Stephen King's original content, uh, it would be interesting to see uh, The Stand for sure. Uh, well, that's redone. happening. That's happening, right? Yeah, that's happening. Apparently we're getting Whoopi Goldberg as Mother Abigail. <laughs> so prepare yourself for that. Well... And I like Whoopi. I mean, I actually, I do like Whoopi, but, um, yeah, I, I'm not sure it's going to be an upgrade from the, the miniseries in, in that casting decision, but. Um, I noticed sort of a theme throughout these. I mean, you'll probably argue with me, I, but <laughs> I think most of these movies have, I would argue, a not super happy ending to them. And um, that is interesting. I mean, it's not that Stephen King always has happy endings. It's just weird that we have a batch of particularly dour <laughs> Stephen King entries. I uh, like that, actually. Um, 
I prefer it when he doesn't go for the happy ending. Yeah. And as much as I can, I, I, I love me some Shawshank Redemption. I love me some Green Mile. But for me, what got me into King and what was the appeal was horror, you know? Uh, and I guess I'll confess, as much as I, like, I'll, I'll read whatever the man produces, I'm always on board for his horror. That's what I like, particularly the short fiction. But I'm always down for another Stephen King novel as well. Even, like episodes like the the Dolan's Cadillac or or Secret Window which aren't necessarily supernatural overtly the level of darkness and sinister like heaviness to them and apt pupil might be up there for one of the ugliest stories in his catalog like period yes. it it's brutal but it's also interesting to watch that movie now through the lens of you know <laughs> Brian's, we know a lot of stuff. We know uh, a lot of stuff on. about Brian Singer, and a lot of things have changed. And it's like, I I try not to let this outside stuff color my perspective of the movie, but I feel like we're gonna do another Jeepers Creepers review. <laughs> well, and the and the story of the uh, the boy in the in the movie Brad Renfro was kind of a, a one of those tragic uh, true Hollywood accounts. Um, yeah. yeah, I might talk about that a little bit more later, but because um, I think he he was a talented young man, um, but you know, don't, not too much too soon. Don't let your kid be in a Stephen King movie. That was another thing that it occurred to me because I heard that the app pupil reminded me of Brad Renfo. And last time we talked about Stephen King, we talked about it. And um, what's the name of the kid who was in uh, John, oh, Jonathan Brandis? Was it? Who yes, was the stuttering right. Bill? Yeah. He ended, was another right. Uh, mm-hmm. Phoenix River Phoenix was in Stand by Me. <laughs> he ended up having like we almost lost Drew Barrymore. I don't know. I don't think it's a safe thing being a kid in a Stephen King movie. <laughs> I, I'm trying to think of you know. It was more of a Kubrick movie, but the Kubrick version of The Shining. I think that guy. I mean, he didn't really have much of a career, but he actually moved on to a fairly normal life as an adult, uh, from what I understand. Well, of course, I'm only half serious about it, but, well, but you know, it's weird. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, it's weird how much, um, you know, bad mojo seems to follow these Stephen King stories. I shall ev- forever remain a fan of Stephen King. I, I, again, you said the first time you are on the show, he's sort of responsible for getting you into reading. He's certainly responsible for getting me into voluntary reading. Like the some of the first books that I chose to read that weren't forced upon me were Stephen King. So I'm going to approach these movies as a fan, and I will make some excuses. That doesn't mean I'm going to give them all a free pass, but I go in wanting to like these movies. I that, that's good because uh, I've been a little bit afraid, especially with one that we're going to talk about, that you're going to be like. Are you out of your mind, Jason, for defending this movie? Right. And I, I there is a lot of um, nostalgia connected to to a couple of these, and I, at least two of the miniseries uh, I have a bit of a history with. So okay, that's, is that, there... that might color color my perspective. Fair enough. Like again, we both come in as fans. Just you know, we're, we're being honest about it. Is there anything you want to say before I list off these movies and we start the rank and review of the rank and review podcast? Well, 
and you can feel free to edit this this idea out okay. uh, if you if you feel that it's uh, uh, too much or the kind of the wrong direction. But I, I was trying to um, psychoanalyze both of us okay. uh, as far as why we're Stephen King fans, and it goes to some of the stuff we we we've sometimes talked about. I've heard you talk about how he paints in broad strokes, and his bullies are kind of two dimensional, but. King, I think, hates bullies, and he loves to destroy them in his pieces. And I think you and I have had experience with bullies. That may be why, partially, besides liking the horror genre, uh, why we respond to his his work, because he he kind of paints them in the way that you know, as a kid, you imagine these bullies to be. Oh yeah. When in reality, you know, there's a lot more going on with a bully, but. He, he does that, I, and I was thinking, I reviewed uh, Christine recently and uh, those uh, 32-year-olds who were supposed to be high school students, you know, um, uh, and, and it just got me thinking a little bit, it's, you know, I recognize that these are kind of two-dimensional characters, but I don't mind it because I love seeing uh, them get their comeuppance. Yeah. And you can see with Stephen King's active Twitter right now, he thinks the biggest bully in the world is Donald Trump, <laughs> and he's trying to destroy that two-dimensional villain as much as he can uh, uh, with his power. So, well, so I don't know. I would complain, and I have complained in the past, that a lot of his villains are one-dimension. They're, they're just bad. They're like they seething yeah. with evil. Even, yes. yeah. I remember reading um, The Dead Zone at a young age, and there's a scene early in that novel where the major villain of the book kicks a dog to death. And, like, it's so on the nose to have, like, a character kick a dog to death. Okay, we hate you now. You're a bad person. But as much as it was so on the nose, the same way he always likes to use, you know, all caps and lots of exclamation points, it worked. I did not like that character. So sometimes the blunt simplicity works. But I do kind of get tired of the archetypes, like the greaser bullies that he goes back to again and again and again. But you're not wrong, I think, in this idea of vengeance or, or getting some schadenfreude out of seeing bullies get punished, because that is a lot of what he touches on in his work. Uh, and we're going to see it in these, but um, I think we should... I think the bullies that got him, and he's trying to get his revenge through his art in that way with the, the greaser bullies, and that's no, why that's there. And he I... doesn't like hypocrites, and the... It, the the villain in the dead zone is a giant hypocrite, and I think that's uh, that's yeah. the other piece there. So, yeah. But you know what I'm talking about? Like the 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 bully isn't just a bully, right? He's gonna carve his name into the belly of a kid. Like like that's some that's, next level yes. crazy. So, yeah, it, yeah, it is. It's, it's cartoonish. <laughs> yeah. Um, it, like. The six films we're gonna talk about today. Well, mini series movies. <laughs> Here we go. Uh, the Stand, Secret Window. The Tommy Knockers, Dolan's Cadillac, Storm of the Century, and the incredibly dark Apt Pupil. Thanks again for being here. Thank you. From Stephen King, the master of suspense, comes his all-time bestseller. Containment breach! We've had a major containment breach! Use the manual gate override, Campion! deadly virus released by a government mistake. A frantic military willing to stop at nothing to cover up the terrible truth. 
the so-called super flu does not exist. What did you do? What did you people do? As the plague sweeps out of control, a nation erupts, society crumbles, the end is here. Now, all that remains, the demon, the prophet, and those chosen to survive. So it's really, really weird to be reviewing The Stand, considering the, you know, age of the coronavirus that we're, we're living through. And, uh, it, I mean, you, I, I was watching a news report about New York City, and they have a hospital barge floating in front of the Statue of Liberty, and they have, like, a pop tent hospital in Central Park. And they have refrigerator trucks parked outside of hospitals because the morgues are full. And, like, it made the stand especially close to home for me upon this viewing. I had a real, real strong love for this movie. Like you said in the introduction of this, is just the ambition of it. The fact that they were doing the stand by itself was exciting. I didn't care it was for network television. I just loved the story, and I thought it was great that they were doing it. And I thought that it was largely successful. But what was true then is true today, at least to me. I don't want to, I don't want to put any words in your mouth, Jason. But to me, I think it starts almost amazing. And it finishes almost terrible. <laughs> and it's a sort of slow journey between those two points. I think that the adaptation is clear enough. I mean, Stephen King adapted and produced it. You know, this was his baby. But it's tonally all over the place. And I do miss some of the darkness of the book. As far as adapting the stand for network television in 1994... I think it's pretty impressive. As far as it being enjoyable to anybody who didn't watch it in 1994 and isn't a huge fan of the novel, I will say I'm a fan of this movie, but I'm guessing a lot of people wouldn't be. <laughs> um, I don't want to be unkind to it. There's a lot of great stuff to say. I think like it's a tricky adaptation. Um, and at the time, since TV still had a stink on it, it like... They didn't have the pick of the litter of Hollywood, so they ended up kind of casting interesting faces for some of these roles. But it's more interesting and cumulatively, like, um, it's fascinating to see how what they chose to, to keep and what they chose to throw away and who they cast as what. All of that stuff in the end might be more interesting to me than the actual experience of the movie itself. That's where I start with the stand, and I know it seems brutal, but I'm actually going to be friendlier with it as we move forward. But that's that's kind of where I start. Well, I, I listened back to my review of it, the miniseries it, on the very first episode um, I, I did with you, and I think I was uh, a little bit harsh on it, um, and it's kind of transferable to to the stand in some ways because. Uh, for the limitations of network television in the 1990s, uh, it is absolutely amazing what they were able to pull off. Yes. You know, again, na naturally, I don't think Stephen King's work uh, is great for network television, like the the old network television before HBO and uh, uh, Melly and other groups started to get involved, and uh, and they they could sort of take. They didn't have to worry about the F-bombs and uh, 
I mean, they would still allow a fair amount of violence in the 90s on television, but certainly not to the level of a Stephen King novel. So I think based on what they had, they did very well. Um, and even even visually, there's some, there's some things which look really cheesy, and there's some other things that, that look quite good. Uh, I think the you know the photography, the uh, the cinematography, for lack of a better term, for a, a TV miniseries, works quite well. Uh, the makeup effects, on the whole, are pretty good. Some of the special effects are very dated. Uh, this rather large cast is uh, a mixed bag. Yes, um, but I don't think I don't think it was a, a bottom of the barrel type of thing. I there. There are some other casts I'm going to talk about where I, I, I think they were just trying to assemble the film in some way, but they weren't. They, they were probably in the C to D list as opposed to even the B list. Yeah. This was B with some touches of A. I, I think there, uh, there's some A listers who make cameos. Uh, I'm really happy Ed Harris has a nice little role in the first part. Kathy Bates. Um, and uh, Kathy Bates, yeah, as you said, Kathy Bates plays this uh, radio DJ. Uh, I, I wasn't quite on board with like the character and some of what was going on there. It didn't quite make sense. But it was nice to see Kathy Bates as well as being kind of an allusion to other Stephen King adaptations, Misery and Dolores Claiborne. Yeah, well, same thing um, with Ed Harris. He was in Needful Things, right? I feel like a lot of the cameos were winks. Yeah. I, in, in more than one miniseries, I, I saw some things which reminded me a bit of Needful Things, uh, the, the film version of Needful Things, which we reviewed on, on that first show I was on. Um, so it was nice. I, I just always liked seeing Ed Harris. In some cases, though, when I would see some other casting, I would think, okay, could they maybe have had Ed Harris play that role instead of this person? Um, and I'll tell you which one in a, uh, maybe later in the review there. I think one of their, a little bit of a coup is to get Gary Sinise. And I think Gary Sinise, um, the 90s were kind of the high mark for him as a film actor. And he's, he's just a solid actor and he's, he's strong in here. I think he can sort of overcome some um, watered down or perhaps even, dare I say, bad writing at points. Um, he really centers the, uh, the, uh, this four-part miniseries quite well. And then there were a mixed bag of other actors that uh, I remember liking back in the 90s. Uh, maybe I don't like them as much now, but I, I still think they're worthwhile. Rob Lowe was pretty good. Um, he was very much... Uh, Rob Lowe was kind of a TV miniseries type of a, a casting choice, if you know what I'm saying. He hadn't had his sort of renaissance as like a more of an actor. He was still sort of the character of Rob Lowe at the time, so seeing him play a role of a, a, a mute person and a, a... They call him deaf and dumb, which is so... <laughs> so there, rough. so many things where you're just cringing now in 2020 with yeah. how... <laughs> the language and just the, how they're treated... Uh, I guess I'll just do a little bit of service to the plot. The Stand is such an ambitious book but and, and, and movie, consequently. The first act of the story is the death of the civilized war, world. A, a super flu is released from a military installation, and it kills like 98% of the population of the globe very rapidly. 
the small groups of population that are left over find themselves drawn to these two different sides through the series of dreams. One group of people is being led to Vegas and this dark person named Randall Flagg, and another group is being led to Colorado uh, and this this sweet old woman, um, um, Mother Abigail, pardon me. Um, and basically a miniature version of civilization starts to reform itself and these two powers seem to have an inevitable conflict to play out. It's... It's interesting because you talk about Stu Redman, the guy who sort of ties the whole thing together. Gary Sinise, you're right, rock solid, very very watchable, very likable. And that's what you want out of Stu Redman. But the interesting thing for me, and I think one of the things that I really liked about the book, is that to me, Stu has no journey in this book at all. He starts the book a totally decent, good old boy, nice guy. And he ends the book, a totally decent, good old boy, nice guy. And there's no real change to his character. He is like a complete baseline, right? We have like good and evil to the like left and right of him. But honestly, for me, the role of the entire, or the, like, it's not the main character, but the role, if I wanted to be in the movie, give me Larry Underwood. Larry Underwood is a musician and a drug addict and a person who uses people. And everything that we learn about Larry Underwood before the plague happens should tell us that he would be lured to the dark side. But he is not called to the dark side. He's called to the light side. <laughs> and he has a journey as a character. Franny Goldsmith, you're played by Molly Ringwald. And I know a lot of people roll their eyes when they hear the name Molly Ringwald, you know. She has a journey. She has this bun in the oven, and she doesn't know if the baby is going to live in the age of this plague. Like, And is she going to carry this baby to term, only to have it die? And she has all these men that are interested in her, and does she want to be with them for the right reason, or is she just looking for a baby daddy? And like, how has the world... Basically, everybody has conflict, and everybody goes through changes in the story, except for Stu Redman. Stu Redman just remains a completely yeah. decent, good old boy. That's not a complaint about Gary Sinise. I think it's a genuine no. weakness of the story, you know? Yeah, I, I am with you on that. And so when I was talking about it, I wasn't saying that that, that was the best character right. in either the novel or the miniseries. But I think uh, as far as if they had grabbed somebody who was kind of hot at the time to be in this, it was it was Gary Sinise. Yeah. Um. I a character well there's, there's it's such a big it's such a big novel to talk about I it's it's one of my favorite king novels um but it's it is in you know it's and huge. I've read the uncut, the uncut one it is uh it is a time commitment but it, it is worth it very much worth it and I, I think it's it kind of is so much parallels um the dark tower series in many ways, and in fact, characters from that are in this, as is the case with many Stephen King novels. Um, but the character that I'm most interested in, I think, is Nadine Cross. Laura San Giacomo yeah. plays Nadine Cross. It's a, it's a really interesting character in some ways because she is kind of on that wrestling with that dark side, the dark side and the light side, and she can make uh, a certain choice. Um, what struck me, though, is um, uh, the uh, the Underwood character, and I'm forgetting the actor's name who plays 
who plays him. He's just absolutely horrible to her. Adam and Stork yet, is the name of the actor. Sorry, Adam Stork is the name of the actor playing Larry Stork. Underwood in the series. Yeah, I wasn't familiar with him. Yeah. Um, he, you know, the character is just absolutely horrible to her, and yet he's supposed to represent the good, and she ends up representing uh, the evil because she has, keeps having these dreams where she's uh, having this amazing sex with Randall Flagg, you know, which they do in... Uh, the best way they possibly can in that kind of PG-ish, um, maybe a little bit more than PG-ish way in uh, at uh, in the mid '90s for uh, for network television. But yeah. uh, I, I like what she did. I think improvements could be made to all of these characters and most of the performances. But as far as liking a character, that's my favorite character in in the book and 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 in this. So. I am a big Lloyd fan. Uh, Miguel Ferrer, Ferrer yeah. he plays yeah. him. Um, he is in prison when the plague hits, and it's a really, really disturbing series of chapters in, in the book as he's like, he sees what's happening going down, and he has to hoard food, and he ends up, you know, considering cannibalism or eating a rat. And, you know, Randall Flagg saves him from that fate. And he is 100% loyal to Randall Flagg from that. He doesn't care what happens going forward. He didn't have to starve to death surrounded by corpses. So he's uh -huh. on board. And I really felt like some genuine sympathy for, for that character, even though he does terrible things. Like, uh, And it's interesting because he made the choice with, with Nadine, the Laura Sanjacoma character you're talking about. I much more got the feeling like it was fate. She was the bride of the devil. She was going to be the mother of this Randall Flagg's, you know, child. And there was she had no say in it. She was just locked into that. Um, I, I just feel, I, I guess I felt a lot of sympathy for her character. Yeah. Um, and, and kind of what, what ends up happening there. Uh, Miguel uh, Ferrer, uh, such a good actor. Yeah. And that, that's no exception here. I think he has some of the weaker scenes as far as writing and perhaps direction. Mick Garris is the director um, of this. He, he's, he's done a few Stephen King adaptations. A lot um, of the TV again, stuff. Very, very, uh, very serviceable director, uh, but I'm not sure. I, I think somebody else could take this material and spin it into uh, gold, um, horror gold, I think. Um, but uh, I so some of the a little bit of play and the direction of the scenes the the scene that leads him into jail is kind of a, a really stupid bad bank robbery type yeah. of scene. Um, the scene and this wasn't again Ferrer's problem as much, but when he's released from jail again, I um, I might as well just get to it. Jamie Sheridan, I hated his performance. I don't think I was distracted about it about it back in um, back in 94 uh, he was a character actor who I'd seen in a few things that I liked so I was like oh that's fine put him in there watching it now uh, he doesn't have the charisma he doesn't have the acting ability I don't think or at least how the movie is cut 
uh, and he's certainly not evil enough the to menace. have the kind of weight that is needed to, to play this role. And that, that's the one where I'm like, okay, Ed Harris is in your miniseries. He probably caught, would have cost too much money for the time. Ed Harris would have had a field day with that role. It would have been maybe one of Ed Harris's greatest performances. Why not have him play Randall Flagg instead? He plays a heck of a good villain. Yeah, well, I, I, this is where we go to the ping-pong quality of some of the acting. Like, I like Gary Sinise a lot. I don't like Jerry, uh, Jamie Sheridan that much, right? I like Miguel Ferrer quite a bit. I'm not super big on Coronemic. I'm sorry, Parker Lewis can't lose fans. I think he's overdoing it a little bit, you know? Um, what was the name of that actor that was in the coach show uh, who plays Tom Cullen? Oh, Bill. Oh, that—that was awful. I mean, yeah. and I don't think it's the actor's fault in that case. No, Bill Fagerbakke. I don't know if yeah. I'm saying that it well, well at all. Uh, again, yeah. that character is highly problematic, and the fact that he gets partnered with Nick Andros, who you know is deaf and dumb, as they keep on reminding us, it makes it this kind of post-apocalyptic odd couple that's a little bit kind of cringy. And uh, again, just the whole use of like. Tom Cullen and his his disability kind of rubs me the wrong way in the in the book and this. I mean, I I know I have my own sort of personal hang-ups with it, but it's just over and above my own hang-ups. It just seemed kind of lazy and on the nose and like I don't know. We talked about that with Dreamcatcher. Yeah. How how problematic um, uh, the Tony Wahlberg character is in that, and it it felt like this like this. <laughs> Even though that one is a professionally made feature film, I will take the stand any day uh, of the week and twice on Sunday over yeah, that. Dream they they are sure. similar types of problematic characters, I think, which is a bit more than a bit on, on Stephen King, too, I think. The weirder stuff is like when there's some actors that I actually like, generally, that I don't like in this. Shawnee Smith shows up in this movie. She was like in the Blob remake and some of the Saw movies. And I've always kind of liked her. I think like she's got decent game as an actress. She's terrible in the movie. She's playing like a one-dimensional Stephen King villain, but she is oh, terrible yeah. in the movie. Ray Walston is an actor that I always like. Uh, Glenn Bateman has some of the cheesiest dialogue in like any King movie. Yeah. And that's one thing that I just can't let go for this stand movie is when it miscues with some of the emotional scenes, it miscues really badly like really badly the ending of this series this like these are four 90 minute episodes and the last 10 minutes have you almost wanting to throw shit at it <laughs> like this is very much one of these places where it's about the journey the 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 path that leads us to the end of this is quite entertaining but the end I agree with the rest of the world, I think is largely disappointing. I've always really liked The Stand, but The Stand could never be one of my favorite King novels because even more so than it, I think the third act kind of derails it. But there's so many great isolated pockets throughout it. In the novel, there's chapters dedicated to people who survived the plague but died on the way to the certain destination that by themselves are these horrifying isolated short stories. Like, the world is so huge and well-imagined um, well that I like the premise more than I like 
the finished story. <laughs> I That's guess. where a TV series would be amazing. Right. Because you could have these it could keep going. episodes about these characters, but, you know, when, when time is a factor for, um, even if you did, like, a feature film and three sequels or something like that to this, I, I still think you wouldn't be able to cover it no. as well as, uh, as a TV series could. Um, there are the uh, extended cameos that are that work really well. Um, as you mentioned, Whoopi Goldberg is going to be playing uh, the Mother Abigail role. I think Ruby D is amazing um, in this. Maybe I'm overselling that performance, but I, I like the different notes she's playing. She serves the story well, and it made me miss how how good she was. Her old age makeup Ozzie, was Ozzie Davis, her husband. Yeah. Are in there. They did a lot of Spike Lee movies together, and um, um, I, I really I liked what Ruby D did a bit more than I think Ozzy Davis was kind of wasted playing that judge character, but uh, it was still nice to see him in there. I liked Ruby D in it. I think her makeup was a little plastic looking at times, but again, I sort of just write that off as sort of the TV and the time it was made. Ray Walston, I'm glad you mentioned him. He was kind of an exposition machine. Right. That, like, there was nothing to it. And, like, I have Ray Walston in my miniseries. I'm going to give him something to do. And, you know, I, I've i never seen him as an over-actor. But some of these takes, he, he's really playing it a bit big. And I, I don't know if that's... I, I'm kind of blaming, again, Garris for that one, that he, he maybe should have... Done. Cut. Let's try that one more time and just, just a touch less. Like I think a couple notches less would have been would have been fine. I mean, like you can't do much about being the exposition machine in uh, in something like this. That goes to the writing. But no. And Stephen King just writes. It would be like saying, "Hey, trash can man, Matt Frewer, can you dial it back?" Well, no. Look at the page. Look at the lines. <laughs> Look at what well, I'm that, being that, asked to say. Like, yeah. of course I'm over the top. How else do you approach it? But I think that in this case, as much as I'm a Stephen King fanboy, the problem is Stephen King. If someone other than Stephen King was adapting this, they would have taken all of those lame Stephen King lines that you autocorrect for while you read the book and put them into lines that make sense coming out of an actor's mouth. That seems incredibly unkind to say, but you can tell bad dialogue that shining remake that that mcdearis directed has some brutal brutal dialogue in it it's it's not just steven weber isn't this like the same measure of talent as jack nicholson but the words that he's asked to say and when this movie like i said when it miscues it miscues hard like at the end of the movie when franny's baby is born and she survives and there's a superimposed vision of uh, Mother Abigail looking over the baby. It is it is hilariously terrible. Like it is gobsmackingly holy shit. This is the this is the climax. This is what I waited six hours for. This is throw something at the TV aggravating. And yet Daddy, I still go. Yeah. I still give a guilty pleasure pass to the stand, but with the caveat, go in as a Stephen King fan. And knowing that the book has the balls cut out of it because it's a TV environment. The story's there in a very bare bones kind of way. I, th this is one I'm probably, uh, you know, grading on the curve if you want. I, yeah. I, 
I'm with you. Uh, it is a, a positive review for me, uh, but there are some things in that eight hours or less than eight hours which are jaw-droppingly bad. Yeah. And there are some things that I think are are decent and probably better than they have any right to be. I, I'm a little bit kinder on some of these miniseries you mentioned, and I remember hearing your review of of the of the Shining that the King did, the miniseries Shining. I like it a lot more than you do. Right. Uh, but I, I do understand that King, when it comes to dialogue, it's 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 rough going and. Yeah. Uh, it's less rough going in here, but there are some bits which are just really strange. The, there's that one about um, when it is quite a good sequence and kind of scary sequence when Gary Sinise in the first part escapes where he's been quarantined. Yeah. But he comes across this emaciated man who has some stupid line about chicken. Uh, Have you know some chicken about? with me, darling. It's so dark. Yeah. And... That something like that completely ruins any sort of intensity of what's happened in the previous, you know, three four minutes before before the end of that scene. But I, I think there's there's enough in here to like. Uh, I am looking forward to a remake of this, but sure. I I always get excited about these things and then I end up being disappointed. So we'll see. You stole my story. I don't believe I know you. I know you, Mr. Rainey. That's what matters. You stole my story. Kind of an amazing coincidence. The stories being so much alike. Her death will be a mystery. Tell it down, he said. The guy calls himself Shooter. Maybe my name, not Shooter. Hello? Remember my story, Secret Window. You and me are the only people that know about that, right? You scare too easy. You're up there all alone. Anything could happen and nobody would know. What do you want from me? My ending. I want you to fix it. I don't think Shooter's just some nut. I'd like to know what I'm dealing with here. You don't want to know. I will burn your life and every person in it like a cane field in a high wind. The only thing that matters is the ending. It's the most important part of the story, the ending. So at the beginning of this season of Rankin Review, you joined me and Mr. Beckman and we did a rank of our top 30 movies from the 2000s. And Secret Mendo was mentioned by you, but not Beckman or I. And at the time, I was basically talking about my memory of Secret Window, but it's probably been over 10 years since I've seen the movie. So I came to it with fresh eyes and I came into it kind of knowing that you, were, you liked it more than I did. And I was sort of thinking, because I'm a fan of David Cap, and I came in with expectations, because I love Stir of Echoes so much, and this was like a, well, it wasn't, was it the, the follow-up to it? It was like four or five years later, anyway. Yeah, I think it was 99, yeah, five years later. Yeah, five years so later. I wanted this to be good, and because I came in with expectations and with my hopes up, I might have been harder on the movie overall. 
What I will say about Secret Window, which is an adaptation of a novella, uh, Secret Window, Secret Hidden Garden? Secret or, Garden. Secret Garden, Secret right. Window, Secret Garden? Yeah. Um, it doesn't fool me. I don't know if it's because I'd read the book before, but I can appreciate the technique and I can appreciate how much kind of waving that they're doing, like hinting at, at what's actually going on in the subterfuge. And the technique and the acting, like I almost watching it again, appreciated it more for like all the effort they were putting into the subterfuge. But I still feel because I really felt that coming that that, that I didn't feel the hit of the twist yeah. that that there's something essentially missing to this adaptation. I mean, it's not just because I've read the book. Like I said, when I saw Shawshank Redemption, I'd read Shawshank Redemption. But when the twists came in that movie, they somehow felt relevatory, you know? It's a weird beast because all of the individual parts work for me. I love the cast. I like the story. I like the director. Scene for scene, things are working for me. But it just adds up to okay to me somehow. <laughs> um, it's weird. It reminded me of going to see... Final Destination in the theater with our friend Lee Beckman. And Final Destination, in the, if you remember that classic motion picture, would often yes. hint right before something bad was going to happen. They would yes. foreshadow it. And there's a scene where a woman gets hit by a bus, and we see a reflection of a bus in glass. And then she starts making this big rant. And I looked over at Lee, and I said, she's going to get hit by a bus. And she was hit by the bus, and I smiled and nodded, and Lee screamed out loud. And, I mean, in a way, this illustrates how fundamentally different I think Lee and I are about our enjoyment of movies. <laughs> but because I knew that she was going to be hit by that bus, it didn't affect me as much. I knew metaphorically that Johnny Depp was going to get hit by this bus <laughs> pretty mm -hmm. much right away. And yes, mm -hmm. that hurts the movie. Is it a bad movie, though? Not at all. Not at all. It's one. It's a really weird case where I feel like I'm being hard on the movie, but I yeah. just can't be dishonest about it. I just want to like this movie more than I do. I guess that's where I start, but I'll pass it to you. Well, I, I guess my next level of subjectivity about the movies we're talking about are um, with the two novellas, with App Pupil and with Secret, uh, Secret Window, Secret Garden. Um, when I read them, I was like, these would make great movies. Yeah. But they are lesser-known Stephen King pieces, so uh, I don't know if they'll ever be made into movies. And when they were made into movies, I was so excited to see them. And uh, and then when I saw Secret Window, somehow it just how, how everything was laid out and some of the stuff you're talking about as the positives with it were, were so impressive to me. Yeah. And um, I... In particular, Johnny Depp's performance, and when we get towards the end, when things go bad, um, uh, I, I think that some of the better work that he has done, I wouldn't consider this like in his top two performances of all time, but I, I thought he was really strong. He was nominated for an Oscar in the same calendar year for Finding Neverland. I thought he was better in this than in Finding Neverland, because um, this... Uh, gave him more stuff to do. I also like Johnny Depp when he plays a villain. Yeah. I like seeing that side come out, like back when he was, you could actually put him in movies, you know. 
Um, I, I really enjoy that. So maybe I, I, I kind of, the first time you watch a movie, you absorb it. And then when you go to, back to look at things critically, then you start to doubt that a little bit. Yeah. I've had points where I've, I've watched this movie a lot. Um, and I've shown it to some creative writing classes as well. Um, and, you know, I sometimes I watch it and then I'm like, I think I overpraised it when I first saw it. And then there's other times I'm like, no, because, man, that's really, really clever. And there's still things, for me, it's, it's more how they get to the place that they get as opposed to what happens. And I'm quite interested in the psychology of the, the Johnny Depp character. Right. And it's really interesting, the very first scene of the film, you see what, spoilers folks, but what ends up being this man's mental breakdown. Like when he, he opens that hotel room, that that's it. Everything that starts to happen after that wouldn't have happened if he hadn't made that choice in the very first scene of the film. Well, let's so, do a little bit of plot because we haven't done it yet. Yeah. Um, Johnny Depp plays a man who is getting a divorce. Uh, his wife cheated on him with Timothy Hutton. <laughs> and um, he sort of retreats to this lakeside cabin to lick his wounds, try and get some writing done while the divorce settles itself out. And he's, he's basically, you know, having a little pity party. And one day there's a knock at his door and John Turturro shows up and starts accusing him of plagiarism. And this basically starts threatening him, you know, you, you, you got to give me my story back or I'm going to ruin your life. And Johnny Depp's character tries to first exonerate himself. Or like, he doesn't believe he's stolen this material. He's not guilty of it as far as he's concerned. What can he do to satiate this man? What, what can he do to make this menace go away? Uh, that's basically the premise of the movie and the big twist that we've been alluding to and part of the thing might have been the fatigue with that, especially when this came out, was yes. that that character, the John Turturro character, doesn't exist. It's a facet of the Johnny Depp character's madness. It's much more effective later on in the movie where he's literally talking to himself. They have those great series of panning shots with Johnny talking to Johnny. But there's something so otherworldly about John Turturro's performance and uh, this is weirdly personal because, like, and I just recently reviewed Oh Brother, Where Art Thou? He kind of reminds yeah. me of his character <laughs> from Oh yes. Brother, Where Art Thou? Which kind of yeah. undercuts the intimidation factor a little bit. <laughs> and I, I wonder, that, like, that could be part of the factors that kind of... The menace of the Totoro character was a little bit undercut for me. But in a way, the flip side of that is that I'm, I have such a crush on Maria Bello... <laughs> Yeah, that, she's uh, so good in this too. She's great in the movie, and this is an early role for her. But and I knew how things were going to play out, and I was just like this slow motion car wreck. Oh no, girl! Oh no, because really, she's yeah. in the position of like she cheated. She's the bad guy, but objectively, she's trying to, if not make amends, like <laughs> she's not a bad person. Even the yeah. Timothy Hutton character, even though the way he's portrayed. We, we, we just built to hate him as the audience. If you sort of, again, watching it the second time, look at the way he looks at Johnny Depp and the way Johnny Depp's behaving, he's like, he's kind of sort of smells the madness on Johnny Depp. 
yeah, they're competing for the same girl, but he's been listening to her bitch about her crazy ex, and every time he meets him, he kind of lives up to the reputation of the crazy ex. Yeah. When we see it, the the story through Depp's character's eyes, I mean, there is a bit of, and everybody knows it's a false lead here, that perhaps Timothy Hutton's character is behind yeah. some of this stuff and has hired the John Turturro character to do this and, and that kind of thing. Um, and yeah, there's a, kind of a, a couple scenes which are, you know, kind of lead you in that direction that, that Depp has with Hutton. I love seeing Timothy Hutton in movies. That's a little bit another bias I have. I was happy to see him in this. He's I, he's not really as strong as, as Bello or Depp. Um, Totoro is an interesting case. I I don't know. I, I, I hate to say miscast. I think they maybe could have had somebody else who I Totoro's can play kind of these Italian like I'm thinking of like do the right thing where he plays that uh, that kind of jerk he can play jerks really well he can play arrogant people really well I, I just don't see him being able to play an intimidating character like physically intimidating right. as John Shooter is supposed to be so I, I I tend to agree with you on on that front but there's there's all kinds of Really, like little clever hints there about um, uh, it's some notes here, but I, I'll be flipping through. I can never find the notes I want to mention when I do this. But while we're uh, while I'm looking for that, I just also wanted to mention the the film score by Philip Glass is amazing. I'm not sure how they got Philip Glass to to do this one, but uh, it's always it's always nice to have. Uh, if you want the answer, is they paid him. Philip Glass did the soundtrack to Candyman, man. He, <laughs> he'll, he'll do he'll do whatever he'll show up that's no stink on Candyman I like Candyman but uh, he's he's done horror movies is all I'm saying so the, there's things like um, there's this one scene where uh, after after Depp's character meets John Shooter he washes he washes his hands right after meeting him and then shortly after that, there's this book that has dirt on it in the later scene after this kind of he's gone to sleep type of thing. They keep having this thing where Depp is, is trying to write something and he's got writer's block and his couch becomes more interesting. We have, I'm not unless a fan of the dream sequences. I think in a couple of these movies, we have dream sequences and I, I know what they're supposed to mean. And it's just kind of when he's in that dream state, other things are are going on that she's not aware of at that time. But I, there's just a lot of really kind of cool details in there. Um, and other spoilers, but uh, there's a dog. The yeah. dog gets killed. Um, and there's some really nice hints about what's actually going on in there. So I like it to rewatch it and to look at the psych psychology of the characters and look at the performances and then look at those scenes from Timothy Hutton's point of view as opposed to Johnny Depp's and from Maria Bello's point of view uh, as well. Um, but it's, you know, I, I think I was, I had it up there as like a kind of a Hitchcock level thriller when I first saw it when it first was in theaters. Right. And now I think it's kind of come down to earth. Stir of Echoes is a, is a better film. I agree. Um, uh, but I, I still think Secret Window is worth watching. And if you haven't watched like a million suspense or horror movies like you and I have, you might, in fact, I know from showing it to students that 
you might not recognize the twist coming. And if you haven't read the source material. But too. in 2004, I had read the source material. The Sixth Sense mm -hmm. had recently happened. The Fight Club had recently happened. Like, there were of this one, too. That yeah. Has... When this was published, this story would have been kind of feeling fresh and new. But I think there was just a, the timing was a little bit off on this one. I guess. It, and it was like a February early year release, which is not a, a it means that the studio didn't necessarily believe in it. Right. They're trying to for a, a cheap buck. But it just happened that Johnny Depp became even bigger than he had been before around this time. And so um, I so like I like a stronger recommendation for me, but with some reservations that you're the points that you're making, I will not disagree with at yeah. all. I like David Kep as a director. I, I would not give up on him. I haven't given up on him in spite of Mordecai. Like I, I, I do like I, I want him to make another stir of echoes, and I, I wait patiently for that to happen. <laughs> um, but I think one of the places where I have to say I think he failed because I watched the little documentary on the disc with this, where he's like he wanted people to be conflicted at the ending, you know, because we've been in Johnny Depp's perspective, this writer's perspective the whole time. Once that turn happens, we're kind of still locked in his place. Like, how do we feel about him smashing Timothy Hutton in the face with that shovel? He doesn't deserve that fate. Maria Bella certainly doesn't deserve that fate. But somehow he wanted that to feel like not a victory, but strangely satisfying. And I did not. Like, as far as I'm yeah. concerned in the story, it's like a guy who went crazy and killed some people. And the movie's about a guy who went crazy and killed some people. Uh, I don't think it's a victory for his character, and I don't I don't feel warmed to him, <laughs> you know? He's a writer who's had a mental breakdown, and he's now become one of his characters that he created. Yeah. Because John Shooter is a character from this short story that I think is becomes the, the big conflict about whether it was plagiarized or not. I can't um, remember, Jason, because it's been long since I've read the book. Was the shooter shoot her thing in the book? Like the guy's I, name was Shooter, it's but like rum, kind of. Yeah, it? it reminded me of a lamer version of Red Rum, which is why I was wondering. I, I didn't remember it in the book. I'm pretty sure in the book he had a cat and not a dog too. <laughs> and there's yeah, the, the ending are, plays out a little differently, but it's, it's been years since I read the novella. Um, I've been actually trying to go back to. That's part of the reason I wanted to talk about Stephen King. I've gone back, gone back to some of its older stuff. Um, but I haven't, uh, that Four Past Midnight uh, collection, I haven't gone back to uh, uh, for, for a few years. So I'd have to reread it to, to tell you. If it sounds interesting to you, check it out. I'm not, I, it sounds like I have my knives sharpening for it. I'm, it it's actually going to rank decent on the list. But uh, I just I, have the feeling that you like it more than I do. <laughs> I, I, that's fair. If you like Johnny Depp, I think this is worth checking out. Um, and if... If nothing else, could we promote Maria Bello? I mean, I Ugh. don't know what's kind of happened to her. And you're right. I mean, between this and this was in the same number of years as The Cooler, which I know you've talked about, how she wasn't nominated for an Academy Award for The Cooler, I don't know. So I feel like she's just been, oh, also a, a history of violence. Oh, the history of violence. She's so hot in that movie. Oh, my God. <laughs> but she's more than hot to me. She's, she's amazing hot. in the movie. Yeah. She's also, and, you know, and I, I think that maybe she's, was cast because she's good looking, but they didn't weren't giving her enough credit for being as good an actor as she is. This oh. this is the case with a lot of um, a lot of people that come up in the Hollywood studio system, where uh, when they get to a certain age, they stop getting work, and people like us are like, 
why why not put them in you know this person has talent like go back and look at these movies so um give us more like, maria like, bello we will take all the maria bello you guys have to offer <laughs> yeah. and uh and david i mean i i think he's I, I don't know if Mordecai kind of uh, colored his career, but and I haven't even seen Mordecai. I don't know, but uh, I would like to see him, if nothing else, writing more, more screenplays and getting together with Spielberg or something like that again. That would be great. Haven, a sleepy New England town whose patriotic spirit is alive and well. Tommy knockers, Tommy knockers, knocking at the door. But lately... Another kind of spirit has been knocking at Haven's doors. Tommy knockers, Tommy knockers, knocking at the door. Something is happening here. Two disappearances in one week. That's more than a coincidence. How many years in the force have never seen anything like it? Something unearthly. It's just gonna change everything. Oh, what's it like, this uh, feeling? Let's experience it together. Something evil. Something is happening to you. Something's happening to this town. And I'm telling you, it has something to do with that thing in the woods in there. There are those who believe. We are about to reach the final phase. There's something there, all right. And that something has made the whole town go to hell fast. There are those who deny. Whatever this thing is making you, whatever the hell it's doing to you, it's not good, Bobby. Are you ready to become one voice that will soon be free? There are those who refuse to give in. Shame on you, Bobby Anderson. Shame on you. You got nothing to fear of. One voice. One voice. You're like a vampire. <laughs> you and your, your precious Tommy knockers. From the world's undisputed master of horror <laughs> comes an extraordinary tale of terror. Join us. There's different kinds of Stephen King novels, as we've discussed. There's sort of like the genre horror Stephen King, and then there's sort of the serious Stephen King. There's the gumshoe crime Stephen King. And then there's, I guess, what I will refer to as autopilot Stephen King, where it's a book sort of made out of pieces of ideas from other books that he sort of chopped into one. Like, by his own accounts... Stephen King doesn't like the novel Tommy Knackers. He has very fuzzy memories of even writing it. He was whacked out on cocaine and alcohol the whole time. And generally speaking, and I do feel this is true, uh, Stephen King has great success in almost every genre except for science fiction. The second he starts bringing in aliens, shit starts to fall apart. I will refer you to Dreamcatcher... And the third act of Under the Dome, if you want to doubt me on this, right? <laughs> like, generally speaking, he hasn't done Aliens well. From That's my opinion. Again, I guess I won't force that opinion upon you, but that's but, how but I feel. There's a lot of Alien stuff, too. I yeah. Mean, there's a whole, it's often cut out of film versions, but there's there's this idea that Pennywise came, came from space. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, it's true. And again, we talked about when we reviewed Needful Things, how it was, we're going to introduce you to a community, and then we're going to destroy that community. See Salem's Lot, see Needful Things, see the Tommy Knockers. Jimmy Smits plays guard, this poet, this uh, insufferable alcoholic poet, who comes to this small town, shockingly in Maine, to hang out with Bobby. I, 
I keep trying to remember from the novel, I think that they were had a friends with benefits type of relationship, but if he was able to sober himself up, that maybe they could turn it into something more than that. Um, and she has radically changed when he comes to visit her. She has found this structure in the woods behind her house and has slowly been digging it up. And the power emanating from it has given strange intelligence to her and the community. And just weird, tripped out shit starts happening. Memorably, I mean, they kind of wink at it in this movie when a character is killed by an exploding coke machine. But in the novel, there's like a flying coke machine that soars through the air. It's really, really, really weird. That said, there are things about the novel that I really like. There's this magic show put on by a little boy where he makes his brother disappear. And I always thought the idea of that, like he really legit thought it was a magic trick that he'd learned how to do. And he made everything else disappear and come back and disappear and come back. But his brother doesn't come back. And how horrible and traumatizing, like that bit by itself is fine. The the sheriff played by Joanna Cassidy here, Ruth, I think her name is, uh, yeah. who has the doll collection. In the book, there's a huge explosion and the dolls rain down on the town, but they kind of change it in the in the miniseries and make it a little bit spookier. There are moments that kind of remind you, oh, that's kind of a fucked up Stephen King sort of Pennywise encounter-ish moment. But mainly, it's just bonkers. And I think that the miniseries is a fair re reflection of how bonkers it is. But I think it runs out of steam long before the three-hour running time does. Not a huge fan of the Tommyknockers. There was a time where I thought it was the least favorite, of my least favorite of the like miniseries Stephen King's, but I don't think I would give it rock bottom anymore. But it's aged terribly. <laughs> um, am I being too mean, or is that a fair assessment? Is this the one where you're going to be saying, Larry, you're full of shit, Tommyknockers is awesome? Well, and I've often heard there's lists of people, just general public, saying what is the worst movie you've ever seen, yeah. and the Tom Talkers does come up. Oh, really? Often. I would never say that, but it's not good. <laughs> I don't. I don't know if I'm. I'm trying these days not to be as sentimental, uh, you know. But there, there's something about this thing that where I like it way more than I should. And so sometimes you've heard me be really hard on some films which um, have a lot more going for it than the Tommyknockers. Yeah. And I don't, I don't know, again, if it's um, because I, I read Pet Cemetery, then the It miniseries came out. And this was, I think, almost a year after the It miniseries came out or somewhere in that neighborhood um, where the Tommyknockers came out. And I, I just became so interested in Stephen King, and this fed into my newfound interest in Stephen King in my early years of being a fan. Uh, so that's maybe why I'm okay with it. Watching it now, I saved it to the end, and I I, I wanted to, okay, I, I've never watched it through a critical lens as much, uh, other than just my, my usual critical lens watching something. So I thought, okay, well, now I'm going to see it. I'm, now I'm going to see all the stuff that I missed when I was younger watching this thing. I view it very much as a B-movie. And it is just so ridiculous. Some things are funny. Um, uh, and 
it's 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 just to me it's it's silly entertainment, and to me it's entertaining enough. And there was enough good, even though I have a note, I have notes and notes of stuff that do, doesn't work as I do for all of these. Um, but on the whole, I'm a lot more positive about the Tommy Knockers than anybody I've ever met in my life. Uh-huh. I I don't know I don't know what exactly it is. Um, maybe I'm unreasonably so a Jimmy Smith fan, and he. Kind of like uh, Gary Sinise in The Stand centers this really well. He makes mo- most bits work with him. There's exception is a scene fairly early on when um, somebody has criticized him and got under his skin. And he goes back to drinking again, and then he gets drunk, and then this really foolish scene where he, he humiliates himself in front of uh, a bunch of writers at this publishers uh, or something. Yeah, yeah. This this talk he's given. That that bit, it was kind of badly written and unfortunately a little bit badly acted by Smith. But the rest of it in most of the, the miniseries happens in the town. I'm a sucker for these small town destruction pieces. I liked Neeple Things a lot more than you did. Yeah. Um, and I, I do like this one. I think this is another example where the the acting, the quality of the acting is a little bit all over the place. Yes. Agreed. <laughs> Go from Smiths, which I think would be the top end. You might disagree with me on, on this. Uh, to Tracy Lords, um, while uh, you know having a porn star in your miniseries, I guess might have been a draw in some way for some people. But she has no acting ability at, at all. all, and uh, the scenes that work uh, the least well are when she takes out this lipstick and she starts to incinerate people with this laser beam. It's so lame, dude. Like a a B-1950s comic. Uh, Or or like some of those those things that they talk about as uh, like Saturday morning cereals or something like that 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 kids liked at, at that time. So I'm... I was willing to go along with some things. I, I think the dolls... Like, it's a really strange in the police station that she has her doll collection there. Um, this is uh, Joanne Cassidy, who de- Joanna Cassidy, who gives one of the better performances, I think. Yeah. Um, but, the, like, the doll collection when she's t- touring these kids through in the police station and she spends a whole bunch of time on the dolls, I found that a little bit weird. Uh, the dolls, spoilers, killing her, um, that, <laughs> that bit was not very well handled. Uh, the dolls looked kind of creepy and that's okay but uh, i've seen better killer doll things in in my time again that uh, seemed like a scene ripped out of it right yeah all, all of a sudden her dolls were evil and they killed her right yeah. uh yeah. the jimmy smith's character gardener a writer and an alcoholic have we ever seen this before yes it's one of it's where he goes and small town alcoholism, drug addiction <laughs> at the time he wrote this that's why he doesn't remember it so yeah. Basically, that character is King himself, I think. Um, but I like the green motif. I don't know. I like that alien green thing that started to happen. Some of the body horror in the second part. Uh, like when Jimmy Smith has to pull his teeth out Ugh. so that to convince people that he's actually... Like, that That still gives me the creeps. That was one of the so things just, that bugged me about the book, uh, or like that I liked, but that part of the side effects of being in close proximity to this thing is you start losing teeth. 
yeah. Jimmy Smith's character has a plate in his head, and that's protecting him from the, the evil energy of it. I think another fail, and this, again, I will attribute to the novel and the source material itself, is that I don't like most of the people in the town before the changes take place. <laughs> so, like, yeah. when the post... The, the guy who's cheating on his wife and, and the woman he's having sleep with... When, when they become evil and corrupted, I don't care. And I frankly think, like, the typewriter that uh, Mark Helgenberger creates to write her novel while she sleeps never gets past being silly to me like it just it seems like an absurd thing that a drug-addled mind would come up with and you get the feeling like while he's writing it this is like fucking magic this is amazing and it's crazy it's just it's it's nonsense and it's crazy i like it it feels like it belongs in a b-movie would you not agree yeah i I I suppose it seems like something that would be created like uh a lesser type of blob type of a thing. Or, I don't know. <laughs> I like John Ashton and Joanna Cassidy. Like you said, like this, like, you know, older people who, you know, kind of both know that they're attracted to each other, but are both too shy to do anything about it. But because they're peripheral characters in this tapestry, Stephen King novel, and you know, they're not the focus, you know, Bobby and Gardner are the focus. They have nothing to do with those characters, but kill them. So there's like, no surprise to it. There's no weight to it. I can't feel the, the tragedy of it. In the book, I at least felt the tragedy of the loss of that character, the, the Sheriff Ruth. Or, like just like I said, the grief yeah. of that little boy who made his brother disappear. I think it's insane that it's implied yeah. that his brother's literally on Mars or something like that in the book, too. <laughs> they don't go yeah. to that point here. Yeah, I didn't have the budget for some of the... like the even crazier ideas that you're describing from, from the novel. Yeah. Uh, the grandfather's pretty good. E.G. E. G. Marshall. I, yeah. He I was in Creepshow. It was a good role for him. Yeah. He was in Creepshow memorably. He gets uh, exploded with a bunch of bugs at the end of the Creepshow movie. But he, yeah, uh, you're right. He gives a true and emotional performance. I kind of like the big-eyed character, uh, Becca. Uh, Alice, uh, Alice Beasley plays her. She uh, goes crazy and kills her husband. Yeah. Uh, that scene's not very well, like, the murder isn't really well done, but I like how crazy she was. <laughs> like, I like the the size of the madness that was triggered in her. I, and I feel bad for her, too. Like, she's one where I actually cared about her character. Yeah. Um, yeah. When, do you remember from the novel, I was trying to, um, why Sheriff, Sheriff Ruth is immune to the alien ship? I can't remember, but uh, it plays out differently. As I remember, it's like a, wa- a clock tower or something in town that, that has the dolls in it, and they end up exploding or something. Mm-hmm. I seem to remember a bunch of dolls raining down in the cent- in the you know town square type of sequence. But no, I don't remember why. But there had to, yeah, you're right. There should be some reason why she's able to investigate it and not be as corrupted by it. Like Smith, it's explained why he has a plate in his head, and I'm, um, yeah, there's just it's one. Of the, it's kind of like the stand idea where there's some that are you know following the evil cult, and some that are uh, immune to that and are on the side of good. King does this a lot in his novels, and then it gets transferred into his films too. I think it um, takes longer for some people too. 
some people are corrupted by it right away and other people have to be around it longer before it really sinks in, I think. Because, like, yeah. Bobby, she's around it for quite a while before she starts being symptomatic and then other people seem to be right away just locked into it. Yeah, I think, I think the, the dog is affected, her dog is affected. Right. And from the beginning, yeah. Yeah, but then, and then here, here's another example of a dog getting um, getting killed. But, um, <laughs> yeah. Well, and here's the yeah, thing. I, when we get to this giant climax and we have Jimmy Smith's piloting the spaceship and sacrificing himself in a big green explosion, and this is why I have to give it a thumbs down review, I didn't feel anything. Really? I didn't feel like, oh, it's too bad you died. I didn't feel like, thank God, that the town has been saved. I just, it just, I, I felt a vague sense of relief that the credits were going to be rolling soon. I, I don't think Jamie Smith's is bad. I just think that the character is, again, it's so familiar, so lazy, Stephen King. He acts the shit out of it considering what he's given. I would say the same thing about Marge Helgenberger, but... Uh, what they're given isn't great, in my opinion. <laughs> you see, I had that feeling about. I thank God the credits are rolling for a different, uh, a different movie we're going to review in this list, but not with the Tommyknockers. And I like that, you know, kind of the recovery of of that that kid. And I, I like the design of things. I didn't think the aliens. Uh, I mean, one there's the one that's in kind of the big rubber suit, but I I thought the kind of uh, the Art direction of the spaceship was quite interesting. Um, you know, they, I thought they did okay with what they had for a budget, and there was enough for me to, as a guilty, guilty, extremely guilty pleasure for me to recommend this. Yeah. But I recognize anybody who doesn't like this, and I might be the only person in the world, including those who made the movie, that actually likes this. But it's, um, I'm, it, I, I don't know. I, I, I thought I might change this time, and it. It's now three times I've watched this, and I still I still like it, and I just have to go with my heart on this one. Hey, it's fair enough. For Tommy Knockers, so the heart wants what it wants, Jason. <laughs> um. <laughs> yes, I, I want an alien spaceship in uh, to be buried in Saskatoon. <laughs> I will back your play as far as the alien designs, like especially for TV, the aliens looked pretty good. But the alien tech, the green light effects, the lipstick gun that you mentioned, all of that shit was pretty hard to watch if you ask me did you like the photography like the motif of green that i the grow the, the lights yeah i mean it, it gives me a like color out of space kind of vibe i get what they were going for but i don't know i just can't get excited about this one i'm sorry <laughs> i'm not mad at you I, I i i totally get it but i uh i don't know i said well, I said when we started, I didn't think we were going to agree on this list, and I stand by that statement. <laughs> he lived in his luxury Vegas condo, but he had a warehouse and operations in Los Angeles. Always in that caddy, which he wore like his favorite suit. You'll watch, and you'll wait. You'll wait, and you'll watch. I sentence you to life. Because I know two things. You don't have the stuff to kill me. You don't have the stuff to kill yourself. Hey, buddy! Buddy, we've had an accident! Oh, I'm not the help you're looking for, Dolan. Kill him. 
So, I kind of feel like I like Dolan's Cadillac more than I should. In some ways, I have some personal biases going in. It's one of my actual favorite stories in that collection, Nightmares and Dreamscapes. And it's pretty basic. It's a pretty simple revenge story. It was also shot in Regina. Yeah. And uh, there's, there's some people that I know that were involved in it. Uh, I've met Amy Matizio a couple of times. We're friendly, if not friends. She gets locked and buried in the back of a van in this movie. And, uh, you know, it's shot close to where I live. And they tried to make Saskatchewan double for Vegas. And in a lot of ways, for such a low-budget movie, it was kind of impressively mounted. And the fact that they got Christian Slater and... Um, um, What's his name? West, from, Bentley. West Bentley from American Beauty. I mean, that might be not a huge roster for a lot of people, but for a Saskatchewan-made movie, those are some fucking movie stars we got here. But in the end, it's none of that that makes me really enjoy Dolan's Cadillac. It's what you talked about at the beginning of this episode. It is the witnessing of a bully being punished. Mm-hmm. I actually think Christian Slater is fucking awesome in this movie. I think he gives a legitimately good performance, especially in that third act, when once the, the trap is triggered and we see the mobster in his box. I actually think, like, he overperforms the material, to me, in my, in my opinion. He is definitely a one-dimensional, evil Stephen King villain, but because of that, we relish his suffering. In a way that maybe we shouldn't. In a way, like at the end of this movie, when this guy, like Wes Bentley's character, has gotten his revenge at the cost of anything that was real and good about himself, it maybe shouldn't be a satisfying, like, good win ending. But to me, it is. We talked briefly about the history of violence in the previous review of, where, of Secret Window. There's a scene in that where, where the kid who's been bullied throughout the, the show turns things around, gets really violent with another bully. And it's not a good scene. In fact, it's telling us that the violence is corrupting him. But I had that same reaction in that scene. I was like, yeah, fuck you. Get him. Get that bully. I want that. I'm not proud of it, but this movie tapped that vein for me, and I found it very satisfying because of it. It's not an impressively mounted production, but it is a micro-budget production. I'm not fooled that it's set in Vegas, but I honestly believe that most people don't think that deeply about things when, honestly, not to underrate like the, the, the task of a production designer, but if you tell the audience implicitly that this is where your movie is set, nine people out of ten will just believe it. <coughs> They'll just accept it. <laughs> I think I might like Dolan's Cadillac more than it's worth for all of the reasons that I've described. Maybe this is my guilty pleasure like, like Tommy Knockers was for you. But I'm going to def- yeah. defend Dolan's Cadillac. It's a little celebrated movie, a little seen movie. As far as Stephen King adaptations go, people are like, what? What was this? Like, it made no ripples when it came, right? But there's some faces I know in the movie, and I did find this basic vengeance story satisfying. I probably like it more than I should, but I do like it quite a bit. That's where I start with Dolan's Cadillac. Yeah, I was going to say this is, this is probably your Tommy Knockers, Tommy Knockers for me because yeah, you, you kind of know that it's it's maybe not that great, 
but uh, you enjoy it. Yes. Uh, I, I, I feel like it's one of those things, I, I think no matter what, there's a little bit of a subjective thing when it is shot in your own province and, and you do sort of know or know of the people, some of the local people that were involved. Yeah. Where I want to put Saskatchewan film. This was back when we had the Saskatchewan tax credit. Yep. Um, film still could get made here. That we were starting to attract more and more projects like this. Yeah. And, you know, other than the exception they made for Corner Gas, the movie, I mean, that's, uh, we're, we're still years later stuck with, you know, what could have been, um, as opposed to, uh, what is. So I'm, I'm really happy to support a movie that was filmed in Saskatchewan. Um, this is going to be kind of a weird lead-in because you, you talked about Christian Slater, um, who's kind of the colorful character here. Wes Bentley's the central character. Uh, and he's on a revenge mission um, because of what Slater has done uh, to his wife. I don't know. If, did, did we need to talk about plot? Yeah, well, yeah. Christian Slater is a human trafficker. Wes Bentley's wife finds out uh, about or sees something that she shouldn't. And she gets exploded. Wes Bentley starts obsessively tracking and following this guy around. And Christian Slater's character, instead of killing this guy because he thinks he's so pathetic and so not a threat, basically just beats the shit out of him and humiliates him and all but dares him to do something about it. And he walks away thinking, that's it. But of course, the story is that this otherwise meek, otherwise peaceful guy takes the advice of his villain <laughs> and executes an absolutely brutal revenge. That's yeah, the basic plot, anyway. Yeah, and, and he's a school teacher, I guess, and and that kind of thing. So uh, yeah, that's that's the thought pattern there. Uh, and this is used. This well is dug up by so many film or more writers, I guess, than than directors. That moments before she's blown up, she's gone to get a pregnancy test. Of course. In the middle of the night when they're in danger, without thinking, she runs out of this hotel room uh, and because she thinks that she's pregnant with her first child. So that adds another layer of uh, a reason for West Family to get his revenge. Um Kind of a weird comparison, like as you know, I'm, I'm listening to your shows backwards. <laughs> okay. So I was listening to the... Christmas one with uh, what was it P two, right? Uh, parking Garage two that that yep. that West Bentley was uh, kind of the serial killer type of character, right? Yeah, um, and I I'm not a big fan of that movie, but I think that character is is kind of a one two dimensional type of villain. Christian Slater in Dolan's Cadillac is that kind of the parallel type of a character in this story. And you can see the difference in how good Christian Slater is to how potentially good, but not quite there, Wes Bentley is. Right. Slater makes things work, even though I might argue that he's a touch miscast. He's a welcome presence in any movie. I just reviewed for my podcast, Robin Hood, Prince of Thieves. Oh, yes. There's no reason why Christian Slater should have been playing Will Scarlet in that movie. Uh but I'm happy to see him in there, and he do, does his darndest to play a British character. Um, here, he he commits fully. He's not afraid to make himself say ugly things and do ugly things for this role. Um, and I agree with you. Slater is is uh, the the performance of the movie. Bentley is serviceable. What I, I looked at some of the um, uh, supplementary 
material, the making of. Also, because I'm curious about, like, they shot some of it in northern Saskatchewan, some of it uh, near Regina, that kind of thing. Um, and the impression I got, and maybe it's unfair to bring this up in the review, is that Slater was kind of phoning it in a little bit. This was just a for-pay type of thing. Wes Bentley was very, very invested in this, hmm. as this was going to be a real great role for him, and keep his career going along so he seemed like he was a lot friendlier with the director and with uh, with the crew and the locals um than, than slater was uh so that might be just my take on it uh that i i mean people involved with it could correct me on that one but i anyway uh, to me all of that stuff was a lot more interesting than the movie itself i had a very very vague memory of reading the story in nightmares and dreams Gapes. There are a lot of really short pieces in there yeah. that I don't think were kind of necessarily meant for a feature-length three-act film, and this was one of them. And so they did their best to create a little bit more of a structure to it. Um, and I think they did, you know, they did a decent job. The movie looks good. Uh, yeah, I, I was. What kind of put me out of it was okay. It's Mind's Eye. Oh, okay. okay. So that it must have been connected to Saskatchewan. And I was like, okay, that's supposed to be. That's supposed to be Nevada. I know that's quite clearly Saskatchewan. And unfortunately, instead of concentrating on what's happening in the movie, I started more attention to that than anything else. And again, um, if it's shot in your backyard, you're going to do that. There's, it's almost unavoidable. Yeah, I, I think so. Uh, I, I guess I had a lot of like really picky notes here and there. I, I didn't understand how Wes Bentley was continuing uh, with his job. Like after he's he's depressed and everything, he's lost his wife and his unborn baby and all of that. Um, like what he does, how he treats kids and, and how he's in the classroom, it just made zero sense. Like I don't think anybody in their right mind. And and then I let that FBI agent who keeps kind of showing up at the school and stuff. Uh, I was having trouble buying all of that. I mean, it was it's fine. It serves the story. Um, I think I'm. I'm thinking I'm skirting around wanting to give this a negative review. It, to me, it is a thumbs-down review. But I appreciate the effort that was put into making this movie. It maybe hopefully doesn't sound too condescending. No, that's okay. I understand what you're saying, Jason. But I honestly think that the last half an hour, and this is like an hour and 27-minute movie. It's not a long movie. It doesn't overstay its welcome delivers the goods. I mean, it might take longer than you'd want it to to get there. It's sort of... Kind of reminds me of Cujo in a way. I mean, Cujo's a way better movie, but Cujo takes almost an hour to start cooking. And I think that this movie is guilty of that. And it doesn't have the tension and it doesn't have like the horror of this typical sort of Stephen King energy. And yeah. I, I think that they focused more on the classroom, which might have been a mistake. In the story, um, he starts working yeah, on this... story at all, I don't yeah. think, was it? He starts working on this road crew, originally just sort of hauling heavy shit and everybody's making fun of him because he's just not cut out for it he's clearly not cut out for it and it takes him months of working on this road crew and coming up with this idea of making the detour and filling a hollow section of the road and and having dolan's car drive basically into a, a sand trap that sinks into a hole in the ground and he can basically slowly fill it in and get his revenge 
It's also fitting because earlier in the movie we see the Christian Slater character bury a bunch of people alive in a car. So it's something that he himself is guilty of. And it would be, I think, like a really horrible, claustrophobic Edgar Allan Poe type of way to die. And, you know, he never in his life, that character would imagine inflicting that kind of pain on anybody. It's just something that would have never happened, right? But his wife is murdered and he is essentially destroyed by that. So it's, it stops being about him. I think that like the whole business that the movie does with his FBI agent buddy, who's calling him right at the zero hour, telling him we're going to be able to arrest this guy. We've got the dirt on him and he's already got him in the hole. Vengeance has already been paid. No, after all of that year, all of those months, all of that preparation, this is about vengeance. He gets his vengeance. Maybe he's destroyed by it. Maybe he shouldn't have done it. But that is the satisfaction of the story. What I'm at war with is should I take satisfaction from that? <laughs> you see, you, you, you mentioned Tommy Knocker's credits came and you didn't feel anything with the Jimmy Smith's death and any of that. Yeah. I, I honestly felt nothing. Right. I, I, I just really did not care about any of, any of the characters in this. Now, I'm sounding quite harsh. I want to say some nice things about this as well. I've already said that I like Christian Slater mm-hmm. in it, and I think he's he's cooking. Like it, From beginning, his first scene to his last scene, the energy is there, right? So he, he does deliver, quite whether he, his heart was in it or not, he, get, he delivers uh, quite quite a good performance um, in many ways, and that, like, and it requires a lot to, to maintain that kind of energy and for it to not look like overacting. Right. I, I, I like that. Um, I actually did have one, um, which factored into my rank a bit, one semi-legitimate scare in there when the couple, uh, they they come home and then they walk into the bedroom and there's this dead body in there. Yeah. Somehow the execution of that, that scene was quite quite well-directed. One of my thoughts about Dolan's catalog, though, is would this not be better served in an anthology, like a creep show type of a format, as opposed to an hour and a half movie? Yeah, I said a similar thing when we talked just, about... Just from the two guys. Yeah, we, when we talked about Children of the Corn, I felt the same way about that. In stretching it to a feature film, they might stretch it more than it is comfortable. Um, to me, it is the payoff that makes the movie work, but the payoff does make the movie work. Christian Slater realizing like he well, right away once he realizes who he's talking to upside outside the car knows that he does not have a lot of bargaining chips but he does try to bargain and he is a pretty good actor he does he tries different tactics and he plays along with the torment even when when Wes Bentley says he wants him to scream he does some really good screams for him i believe that he was at the end of his tether and like i don't know I don't know to think more or less of uh, Christian Slater after what you said. Like, if he was being shitty to our Saskatchewan filmmakers, that's unfortunate. And if he didn't want to be there, that's unfortunate. But the performance is there. He delivered the goods. And, I mean, we've got to give him that. Well, I I think he was, from what I could observe, it's just like he was professional. But he just was was just going through the motions. It was another gig. It was the next gig. Wanting to find out, like, he's talking about every shot, and I, I think he was really good to the crew and all that. And that might be just who who he is versus who, who Christian Slater is. Who, who knows? Wes um, Bentley I needed wanted, the I, gig, right? 
Wes Bentley I, disappeared from Hollywood for a while. Rumor has it there was a bit of a drug problem. And I think he so, needed that starring role. Whereas for Christian Slater, there was always going to be another role, be it in a TV show or a movie or something. Someone was going to hire Christian Slater for another gig. Maybe that was it. But it's all was, supposition, really. Yeah. I, I want to like Wes Bentley. I, I loved his performance in American Beauty. I, I kind of, a lot of people talked about Chris Cooper in that movie. I wanted Wes Bentley to get an Oscar nomination for it. I thought it was a very uh, complex character he played there. And I was just like, I can't wait to see what this guy does next. And P2 was what I think he did next. And yeah. he, last... he shows up in a while and some things, but it, I, I'm, I'm not sold on him as an actor other than in that one film. At this no. point, it's been kind of grim. He's not awful. He's not. He's not Tracy Lords, but <laughs> it's been grim though. He was in that terrible Ghost Rider movie, <laughs> you know, and uh, completely agree. I'm probably overselling it. And like I said, like I almost felt shame at how much I enjoyed watching that Christian Slater character beg for his life and squirm for his life, and knowing that he was going to have a terrible death and kind of being okay with it. I mean. I maybe should be more conflicted than I was, and maybe it's all the years of bullying that I was subjected to as a kid, but uh, it, I connected to that. And yes, it was made in my backyard by people, some of whom I know and who, you know, I just want to support. And yes, it was before they destroyed the film industry in Saskatchewan. <laughs> Remember how they said we're going to take away the tax credit, but we're going to replace it with something better? Yeah, that was a fucking lie. They just killed film in Saskatchewan. So I guess... This is kind of the tombstone, the epitaph to Saskatchewan film. And I'm, a gl I'm glad that I don't think the movie sucks. I, I mean, I'm overselling it. It's not amazing. But I, I genuinely think it's, it's, it's well enough put together. I think it might have been better served as a short film. Like, I will agree with you there. But I was satisfied enough that I'm giving it a pass. Yeah, and I feel appropriately guilty that I'm giving it a thumbs down review because I would love people to come to Saskatchewan and make movies here. It is just as beautiful as Alberta, and uh, I mean Manitoba's film industry is amazing, and I don't think the landscape is that much different in Manitoba than it is here in Saskatchewan, and I. I do credit Dolan's Cadillac for making good use of different sections of the province, it appears, that, yeah. as they did. So. But we needed a yeah. new football stadium, Jason, so fuck it. Oh, yeah. Who are you? Give me what I want, and I'll go away. What's your name? Andre Linoge. He was looking at him like a snake, looking at a bird. What are you doing, sir? You mind telling me? You have something to do with that. Give me what I want, and I'll go away. Refuse me, and I assure you. I can punish. We couldn't kill him. I don't think he's human. What could he possibly want? He's the devil! Don't let him near me. What do you want, Lenoz? That's right. Come on, Ralphie. Never. I don't think we have a choice. Discuss it. Then choose. So Storm of the Century is one of those exclusive for television Stephen King events, much like Rose Red. He, you know, it's an original Stephen King screenplay, but it's not based on any previous works per se. <laughs> 
Rose Red was much more guilty of being a patchwork of pieces of other Stephen King writing. There's, I think, much more original going on in the Storm of the Century story. I think that the production got lucky with the casting of Combe Fior. <laughs> and I think that um, it has sort of the interest factors that I don't have a map for this story. With most of the Stephen King uh, miniseries or made-for-TV stuff, I had written the books beforehand, so I had a map to follow. And I guess I will say it's a disheartening thing about, like, Storm of the Century. Maybe not the whole, like, purpose of the Lenogue character, but I wasn't surprised at the basic structure. And, like, here's a bunch of main characters on an island, and here's this person's glitch, and here's this person's uh, characteristic, and they're going to be exploited for horror. Yeah. Once again, I have that paint-by-numbers thing. There was a little bit measure of excitement just because, you know, new territory. But it's another one of these ones that it, it's good enough that I'm going to give it a passing grade, but it's just really hard to get super excited about it. I think I might have given it a failing grade, but... That third act kind of surprises me. <laughs> so this story of a uh, island community that's beset by a terrible storm, and on top of that, on top of all these emergency preparations and the, a meeting building in the town to be as a shelter if things get way out of hand being set up, this stranger shows up in town and starts killing people. And even though they arrest him and are able to, like seem like put him in a safe place it's clear that this dude has all of the cards and that they have none and he keeps on coming back to them with this message give me what i want and i will go away it's one of those things where i like it while it's happening and then the more i think about it the less sense the whole thing makes but it has mm -hmm. a darkness to it that especially for a prime time stephen king kind of surprised me so i'm not gonna outright dismiss it while at the same time i'm not i'm not excited i'm not foaming at the mouth over storm of the century it's interesting <laughs> that's where i start with storm of the century i was trying to see what what network it was on because it was it was a miniseries i didn't watch when it came out but I mean, I could tell it was made for it wasn't made for an HBO type of thing. It was a little bit more like The Stand and Tommy Knockers, Shining, it, yeah, that kind of a thing. Um, but yeah, an original piece. Yeah, I kept being kind of. I I came in really wanting to like this, really really wanting to like this, and settle into it. And okay, as I said, I love the stuff in a small town, and the small town kind of getting a little bit destroyed and the archetypes in the town um but it's it's funny with comb pure you thought that was kind of the the plus <laughs> in there um our mutual acquaintance he was your teacher uh i never was a teacher he's my friend tom ratzlaff um i've talked to him over the years and he's not a big fan of comb pure oh really and i've always been like oh, why i mean like yeah that he he's a canadian actor who does pretty solid work over the border and still remembers Canada. He goes to the Stratford Festival every few years, that kind of thing. 
And it was shortly after I had one of these conversations about him when I was reviewing Titus um, and talking to uh, Tom about that, reviewing with Tom on my show. And then I watched this after that. I started to see what he was talking about. I, I didn't think he, he was very... I had problems with his line delivery. I thought it was a little bit wooden. It was He was trying really hard to play kind of a Hannibal Lecter type of character. Uh, I kept being reminded of uh, Max von Sydow and um, Needful Things because it's like the devil comes into this town and just works on everybody's weaknesses and destroys it, but it wasn't as well acted. Right. And, and so right. I, I think if I was to buy into that character, I might have been more invested in this. You said you weren't terribly excited about this, and this was the one that was a real drag for me. I, I couldn't wait for it to end, and when I thought it was over, it then we had going. like probably two or three other sequences. Like the uh, the denouement, I think it just goes goes on and on and on. And that sometimes happens with, uh, something I was gonna mention earlier, sometimes with, with King's novels. He'll have this really clever idea then it goes kind of bizarre with the supernatural stuff. And then um, after the climax, we still have like 100 or 200 pages of what happened to every single bit character. And if I cared about these characters a little bit more, then maybe I would have... Um, I, I would have liked it more. But I, I, in fact, I'd, I'd hate to say it, but I got a little bit bored by it. Um, well, I will agree with you. Especially kind of in, in the middle and frustrated with it at the end. It doesn't maintain the length. It seriously does not need to be as long as it is. And it, it's not even about the amount of the scenes. It's like the pace of some of the scenes themselves. There are so many protracted scenes of dialogue amongst the like citizens in the, in the shelter that just seem to go on and on in circular. You do this, you do that. This is the plan that we're going to make. And we're not getting to know any of the characters anymore. It's just, it's weird. But where I will defend Comfiore, and maybe it could be the casting thing, is you got all these main islanders and a lot of the actors doing those like really over-the-top heavy, you know, main accents, if you can even call them that. And then you have Linoche, or whatever, is that the name? I keep on thinking I'm getting the name wrong. Um, and he's got this very stoic, almost English proper delivery and it is very much as you described the comb for your delivery but because it is so precise and it is so clean and it is so mannered and it's so different than anyone else he stands out as other he is so other that they clock him as inhuman almost right away yeah. i think where the script problems happen is again much like rose red when in doubt steal from yourself right <laughs> This thing that, that this character can see to your greatest sin and, and call you on it and shame you. We have seen that before. Yeah. In Rose Red, he sort of stole the idea of the, um, is it the Remington House? Uh, the Winchester Manor, pardon me, not the Remington, the Winchester yeah. Manor. He took that real historical thing and kind of built his, his house around that. In this case, yeah. it's the disappearance of the Roanoke Colony. He kind of mm -hmm. takes that as like... Yeah. So he's stealing from himself, he's stealing from history, but you're allowed to do that. I mean, I, I don't think it's, it's, it's wrong to steal from your own things, but as a Stephen King fan, I, I see through the subterfuge. I see him taking pieces of other stories and wedging it into this one. And that tells me that maybe he's less excited about this story. 
I mean, just for me as a creative person, I, I'd much rather be breaking new brown, ground than rehashing something that I that had already done, right? But he was really excited at this idea of giving us a novel on television. Mm -hmm. I saw him interviewed about this, and he says that he thinks this is the scariest thing that he wrote for TV. I do not agree with that. <laughs> but um, he was a I, producer on it, and he and he wrote it. I think he was highly heavily invested in the uh, in the project. He does one of his cameos, like he he's in the stand as well. Yeah, he often does this. It's a bit distracting when he acts in his own movies. In this case, he was kind of uh, this <coughs> something. Uh, on television early on, um, we see this kindly old woman who gets like brutally Bludgeoned. killed early on. Yeah, um, and that part I'll give I'll I'll give it cre credit for it, it brings it brings the blood it brings the violence. Yeah, um, maybe a bit more than than the other ones, and I think it on the whole you could argue it's it's better made than Tommy Knockers. Um, Agreed for sure. Uh, Maybe even you could maybe even argue it's it, it looks better in some places than the stand. It's not as ambitious as the stand, um, but uh, an individual acting performances I liked. But what I where I'm stuck is I get excited for whatever reason to watch the three hour Tommy knockers. Right. I'm not sure I would be. I, I mean, I'm sure, odds are I'll watch this again for some reason, but <laughs> I'm not finding myself terribly excited to revisit Storm of the Century. Uh, one of the actors I want to mention that I was really happy to see here, uh, Julianne Nicholson. I, I've only seen her in a few things, but uh, she, she has kind of a, an, an interesting face and interesting presence in here. I, I'm not sure what, what was the thing with the cast of Wings showing up in these Stephen King movies. Uh, Tim Daly is... Yeah, you know the central yeah. character. He does everything in the town. He's the town leader. He's the police officer. Um, his his story kind of carries this, and yeah. he makes he he has kind of the uh, is connected to the Sophie's choice that happens at the end of uh, at the end of the film. Um, I think there's a lot of potential in all of that. I mean, you you know I'll. If you give up one of your town's children, I'll leave you alone. Yeah. Right? Yeah. We get to pretty late in film. But once again, this is another... And The Stand has this, too, where we have these these ridiculous town hall meetings which don't feel like anything that would ever really happen. And so I, I, I found that scene, which I uh, maybe wrongly interpreted as the climax of the miniseries... Um, Found it like way, way, way too much. Right. I, I, I found it too much, even though I like the ideas in there. And then he appears and disappears. But as but bad I, as that I, is, that. and I agree, I already sort of called it on the fact that they sort of have all these circular conversations. Nothing is as bad as the moment in the stand where everything stops for them to sing the national anthem, right? <laughs> right. And like we forgive that in the stand, but we we're, we're frustrated by that here. I think where I get interested is snap back into place. And you're right. It does take too long. It is too long. But Tim Daly loses his son. Lenoche escapes with his son, raises him as, as his own, and credits roll. Evil triumphs over good. It, I, I was thinking about Pet Cemetery the other day, another great Stephen King novel about how that's one of those things where Everybody, by necessi necessity of the plot, makes terrible decisions. But 
the the story kind of makes you understand why Lewis makes these terrible decisions that destroy his family because he feels like he has no choice. The interesting thing here is that Tim Daly doesn't make bad decisions. In fact, he's the only character in the whole thing, it seems, that does... The, he gets mad at Lenoche when he kisses his son. That's the one time he loses his shit. But for the most part, all he is is good, holding the community together, saving people, protecting people. And he doesn't lose his son because it was, uh, you know, chance. Lenoche selects his son and takes his son, right? It is 100% pitch black. And I have to say, I was surprised by that. In, in the primetime TV, you know, king world, that was about as sour an ending as I've ever seen. Like, short of Pet Cemetery, it's one of the more brutal endings that he's given us. And, uh, I, I, I mean, the bad ending doesn't make it good overall, but I genuinely didn't see it coming. And I guess it's the only thing about the movie that I didn't see coming. <laughs> like, really? That's it? Yeah. He takes his son and raises him as his own personal demon, and the good sheriff moves away from the island forever, and he sees his son one day, but his son hates him? The end? <laughs> I, it's, I don't know if it's a satisfying ending, but it's different than anything I've ever seen from Stephen King. <laughs> and Stephen King repeats himself, even within this, so I'm going to give it limited points for that. Does it work 100%, Jason? No, it doesn't. I will give it more points personally just for production and for surprise. I will put it a, a few inches ahead of the Tommyknockers. But I don't want people to confuse me with saying that this is great. It's knee-deep in mud. It moves incredibly glacially slow. <laughs> like, uh... But there's, there's an interesting seed story there. We were talking about Adolin's Cadillac maybe needed to be a short film. I think this just needed to be a movie. And if it was a movie instead of a miniseries, it actually might work really well. Uh, what I want to say is I agree with you. I think if this was an hour and a half to two hour feature length film, I, I think it could be better. It I, I might... It might not have dragged as much. And again, I'm the guy who watches four-hour movies. So anytime I'm complaining about pace or um, being bored by something, I mean, I, I always think that's kind of like the, the lamest critique, that you're bored right. by something. It often says something more about the viewer than it does the, uh, you know, the actual uh, film or whatever itself. But I, I was. I just could not could not get into the story at all. And maybe, maybe if it was half as long, I, I might have bought into it. Um, the only other thing I kind of wanted to, to mention, another actor who I quite like, uh, Jeffrey DeMoon. Always good um, to see him. Yeah. He, he reminded me a lot of kind of the J.T. Walsh character from Needful Things. He's, he's kind of like one of the, the town leaders, but he is, you know, he's all about image and all about himself. King goes to this quite a bit. Um, and this was a kind of a different type of character than, say, his character on The Walking Dead or in The Mist or, or that kind of thing. So um, I, I thought he was pretty solid. So some of the supporting players were good, but it was... And I thought Tim Daly was serviceable, but I wasn't that excited about his performance. Even well, though he has some really dramatic 
choices to make. But. You were talking about it just being weird that they always have sitcom actors. That was part of the 90s aesthetic. There was stink on TV. If you were a movie star, you had to be lured into television. You had to, mm -hmm. like, it was a sign that you were on your way out to do TV. So, yeah, like, that, and this is established right away out of it. They have, like, alumni from Night Court and WKRP in Cincinnati. All these yeah. people whose sitcoms have, have ended and they're looking Three's for... company. Yeah. <laughs> well, and, I, I mean, and it, was, it worked to other degrees of success. I would complain more about Tim Daly if I thought he sucked in the movie. I don't think he, he does. He doesn't suck in it. Yeah. I just, I'm not excited about him like I am about Gary Sinise, who took a similar type of role and, and made it way more interesting than it probably should have been. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I'm at danger so, of overselling Storm of the Century. I find it more interesting than good, but I mean... We're kind of comparing Shades of Brown and shit a little bit here when we talk about the miniseries. And that's super unkind, but like, they are low budget and they just on their premise can't really do justice to the books. So right away, they're just kind of doing the best they can given their circumstances. <laughs> and this doesn't have a book that we can go back to and sort of say, well, if they had a bigger budget, they could have improved on the source material. This is... This is it. Um, you don't need to make a novel for TV, Mr. King. A movie will do just fine. Well, do a TV series. I guess, but you, you couldn't at that time. You yeah. just couldn't at that time. And, and this is 99, I think. Uh, so I think they, they did the best they can. I feel like I'm being extra hard on it. I, I kind of, it's a guilty pleasure to watch some of these really bad Stephen King movies for me. Yeah. And where I'm seeing some ridiculous stuff. And there wasn't anything in here. It was kind of the middle ground. This isn't great. But there isn't anything like B-movie terrible that I can sit back, put my brain on hold, and just not think about. Like, I, I thought I, I, you know, I have to sort of think to keep up with this. And, yeah, I, I'm just not as excited about it as I am with some of the other ones on this, this, this grouping of six. Fair enough. What'd you do during the war? I know something about you. So many things can happen in between. Each knew something the other wanted to keep secret. The boys ready to come down to the cellar. You're not going to believe this. If you don't believe in the existence of evil, you have a lot to learn. Aft Pupil is uh, from the same collection that uh, Shawshank Redemption and uh, The Body is taken from. Different is it seasons. called Different Seasons, right? Yeah. I used to have, actually, they I used called to... Four Seasons once. Yeah. Uh, different Seasons, I believe, yeah. Uh, I used to have a hardcover copy of it, and it just disappeared from my shelf once upon a time, and I'm super bummed about it. Um, I think Aft Pupil is one of the darkest and more straight horror pieces that Stephen King has ever written. And, you know, 
maybe at the time that this come out, came out, because it was before Lord of the Rings, I was aware of Ian McKellen, but Ian McKellen hadn't become Ian McKellen yet to me, mm-hmm. you know? Uh, he probably should have, but he hadn't. Um, I think that Ian McKellen is the reason to watch the movie. I used to think that like it was a bunch of things about the movie that was worth watching, but now I think Ian McKellen is the reason to watch the movie. And mm-hmm. I don't think that everybody else sucks necessarily, but the stuff around the movie doesn't work as well as that main central performance. The central performance makes the movie worth watching, but there is something inherently uncomfortable about it. And it's not just the subject matter of this high school boy who finds a Nazi war criminal in his neighborhood, and instead of turning him in, blackmails him into telling him stories of the torture and you know atrocities that he participated in, and how this relationship further corrupts both of them. Uh, it, it's incredibly ugly and dark, and I think Redford does okay with it, but then we add the added wrinkle of Brian Singer. Now, we were talking like with, with the Woody Allen episode how we can't really hang people on accusations and like no one has actually put any cuffs on Brian Singer, but I really starting to feel like he's entering the same territory that you know Michael Jackson was in once upon a time and that Bill Cosby was in another There's enough smoke, there's enough complaints about him, enough lawsuits against him enough you know people talking behind the back or otherwise about how brian singer is inappropriate with young men and this is a story even in the behind the scenes documentary on the film where he says what lured him to this subject matter was the dark curiosity of a young adolescent like he got sued by Uh, extras in this movie because according to the accusations he was asking them to appear naked even though the the movie wasn't asking for it it wasn't in the script completely unnecessary for the context you know apparently there's been a lot of whispers in the vancouver film community about the x-men film sets and how some actors were not well treated and what some actors may or may not have had to do to get roles (laughs) there's been Mm -hmm. a lot of rumbling about this and then, to add the cherry on top of this pie, they changed the very brutal, potent ending of this story by taking the violence out of it. They don't try to redeem the kid's character, but they save his life. And he gets away with it by blackmailing his guidance counselor by saying, yes. I will tell people that you were molesting me or trying to rape me. And if you mm-hmm. destroy me, this is the weapon I will use to destroy you. Not only does that suddenly become a betrayal of the source material, which I do believe it is, but it also has this extra layer of just gross when I, you know, put the director and the context of all of this controversy around it. So as much as I would like to remove myself from it for this conversation, I can't. It distracted me while I was watching the movie to the point where I liked the movie less. And since I already went into the movie thinking that they almost did a great job of this until they completely bitched the ending, I've Mm -hmm. gone from a lukewarm review to a kind of thumbs down review. Mm -hmm. I think that, like I said, that central performance from McKellen is great. There's great scenes. I love that scene with Elias Cateus as the homeless guy. And 
Uh, like, there's moments, the scene where he, uh, he's forced to put on the Nazi uniform for the first time in years, and we see this awakening happening in him, and he, at first maybe he was fighting it, but as soon as the suit goes on, he's not anymore. Like, there are great moments. There are things to defend about the movie. But my overriding response to this is ick. And it's not because of the Nazi shit. It's because of <laughs> Brian yeah. Singer. So that hurts. It's not a bad movie, but I do not recommend watching it unless you're a huge fan of Ian McKellen because he acts the shit out of it. The rest of it is a failed adaptation largely and under the background of a backdrop of abuse, I just have trouble singing its praises. Is that unfair? Am I wrong? <laughs> Yeah, I, I don't think you're unwrong, or unwrong is that a word? It I, is I don't now. think you're wrong. <laughs> um, the the scene that I heard about that was the problem was there's a scene with uh, Brad Renfro in the the, the showers. Yeah, in, in his high school, and then you know Singer wanted to have all of these underage boys appear naked in it, and the scene itself is like something else because then. Uh, you know, it gets really steamy in there. And then the boy starts to see uh, the ghosts of people who are in the concentration camp. And I, I think that like that whole bit is in quite poor taste. And then on top of it, if this was, if that's what was actually going on on the set, that's, that's difficult. I'm going to attempt to review it because I think I would be a hypocrite. Right. In some ways, if I let that, be my review of what what singer might have done because uh i was defending woody allen for you know we don't know what he did and what he didn't and certainly there's no evidence that woody allen ever on, on his sets ever did anything that i'm aware of but um it's been but, a cons- yeah, i've heard that about singer singer's been fired from some pretty successful yeah the deserve to be project recently he's he's got a real black mark on him but he worked with Ian McKellen a, a lot, like Ian McKellen on the X Men movies. I, I'm not, I'm not sure what that's about. Like, I mean, I don't know Ian McKellen, but I think he. Well, at the time this was made, worked with decent people. At the time this was made, this was from the director of The Usual Suspects. Okay, like yeah. he was as about a hot and up and coming director as you could be, and none of the stink was there. But mm-hmm. the controversy started with that pupil. It continued throughout the X Men movies, and it continues to this day. Now again, we don't. Nobody has said yes, he's guilty, but it's hard to not believe that this many years, this many accusations, that there's not some measure of truth to it. You know, it's it's hard to. And I don't. I hate making the review about it. Like I said, yeah. we're uncomfortable with the movie, and it's about Nazi atrocities during the Holocaust. We should be mm-hmm. uncomfortable by yeah. this movie. Like, like it, it earns that uncomfortable. Like maybe it is quote in poor taste. It's an edgy, hard thriller. And, like, it's so strange that it has this new layer of gross put on top of what's already an unpleasant meal, you know? And I I, I don't know exactly. Again, I, I, I get bogged down with the Brad Renfrew story. He was a kid that they found, like, making these, acting in these Just Say No to Drugs videos or something. And he got a role in The Client. And then he got several acting gigs along the way. And this was one of his most prominent ones. Uh, and then in his early 20s, he dies of a drug overdose, right? Yeah. Um, 
and I, I mean, I don't know how inappropriate Singer was with these young actors. And, you know, there, there's a reason that some people, like, get, you know, deep into their addictions to this level. And, you know, if he had been molested or whatever by, by Singer um, and was carrying that with him, I mean, that's, that could be another layer to this. Obviously. on my part, but. Uh, yeah. Obviously, that's a hard thing to hang on the movie. Like, we don't know that that happened, but, like, it the fact that that's in our heads is going to color it. Yeah. It's going to color I, it. I think it's a well-made movie. I agree. It's it's It, it does betray the source material. And uh, App Pupil is just one of my absolute favorite uh, novellas by by Stephen King. I, I actually think The Shawshank Redemption is one of the rare ones like it's better than the source material right um and i I might even argue in a way that app pupil is a better just novella on its own than rita hayworth and the shawshank redemption but this film i was so excited about it as i said to, to see it and to see that the dynamic from the beginning doesn't always feel right like i'm probably more positive about the movie itself than than you are i think it is horrifying and some things are quite well made uh, i like renfrew's performance uh McKellen's, um there's some other performances i'm a little bit uh, distracted by uh for sure um, like uh, the sitcom actors I, you were talking sorry? about like the sitcom actors you were talking David about swimmer or yeah swimmer's appearance as the guidance counselor first of all i mean and we've talked about this before when I work in the education realm and I am a, actually a guidance counselor right now. And I, I had trouble with like the whole setup that McKellen shows up and pretends to be his grandfather and talks about all this, uh, all this dysfunction in the boy's family that, that the guidance counselor would just take this strange man he's never seen before at his word and not do a little bit more investigation into what's going on with this kid. Um, and just, you know, like make this deal. It doesn't make sense. And he, he totally set himself up for this ending, which I know is is quite different than the source material. But that whole section was was kind of difficult, uh, difficult to deal with. Um, it's weird because for me, that character is very well intentioned and is actually like trying to do good for the Renfro character, both in the book and yeah. in the movie. But I have to say, I don't know what it was, but Schwimmer really did distract me. I didn't find yeah. him credible, and like everything else in the movie was difficult, but I was buying it. And mm-hmm. the only thing that was getting me through this is like, this is David Schwimmer. We're going to watch David Schwimmer get his head blown off, and it's going to be delicious. <laughs> and uh, nope, they didn't <laughs> deliver that either. That. We can't let the friend do that, I guess. Yeah. Uh, and but again, I, he's in the movie because at the time he's a hot property, but is he the right man for the part? I don't know. I don't think Schwimmer sucks. I think you have to be careful how you cast him, though. Well, they were trying really hard. It's supposed to be set in 1984, so they gave him this, you know... 80s stash. Like I've ever turned this, yeah, this 80s stash. Yeah, I got, I got a little bit distracted by that. There were other actors in here that I liked. Josh Jackson. A lot of these movies were made in Canada. Too. Canadian content. Yep. He, he shows up as Renfro's friend in there. Um, liked him. Uh, Bruce Davison, who also appears in the X-Men. Yep. I liked him playing the father. Uh, that, that dinner scene, I thought, worked really well when McKellen shows up to dinner and they're 
covering up the secret. Um, and the, the scene you mentioned you liked when he, McKellen puts, he's forced to put on the it's SS suit. uniform and then he immediately turns into this. I thought that was forced. Oh, really? Like that, yeah. I didn't have uh, as much of a, a positive reaction to that. I just like that he starts the scene fighting Brad, the Renfro character, like completely about it. This is too far. This is stupid. I'm not putting this on. And he mm -hmm. likes it right away. As soon as he puts on the suit, he likes it. <laughs> I thought yeah. it was interesting. I, I, I felt like the note was like he almost turned into the Terminator for a minute or mm -hmm. something like that. Like he was no longer a human being, which I mean, is sort of the point they're making about, you know, how the, the mind control that these these soldiers uh, had under under Hitler. But... No, there's echoes of Dr. Strangelove, and maybe not in a good way, like that he just yeah, cannot help not. himself but say, Hail Hitler. <laughs> like, he just, it's so part of who he is. He just has to do it. I, I, I like the sequence in the hospital. When McKellen ends up in the hospital, and yeah. there was the... Uh, and that actor looks very familiar to me. I don't know his name, but the actor who was uh, in the next... And then that that reaction, like I thought, that was a, a it's a small performance, a really strong performance in there too. Well, he's he looking into who this guy is, and it's you know when he he looks at him and he he's not sure that that's mm -hmm. the man, but once he gets close enough and he realizes this is the man who killed his wife and his children, yeah, and it, it, the face isn't rage, the face isn't horror, it's some sort of catatonic mix of the two. Yeah. It's yeah. well done. It's well done. So I, I, I think there are moments, if I just take it on as technically speaking, and again, it's the it's the budget thing. Yeah. This had more of a budget. It looks more professionally made than the miniseries that we're talking about. So maybe it's going to rank, even though I'm, I'm really questioning my, my thinking on this, it might rank a little bit higher than it deserves to in this mix. Um, but it certainly didn't live up to what I was hoping it would be. Um when I was so excited that the movie was being released. And that yeah. does poison the pool sometimes. When you really want a movie to be good, you can yeah. sometimes shoot yourself in the foot. I totally have been guilty of that in the past. Like having no expectations for Tommyknockers, so I'm pleasantly surprised, and others ha maybe had expectations for Tommyknockers. And I have high expectations for Out Pupil, and it's a much more adult story than the aliens landing in a town in Maine type of thing, but it it can go nowhere but to levels of disappointment. I think there's the potential for a really strong film in here, but it falls short of that for me. And for me, I would just have to say, read the book. Um, yes, it's yeah, well, just it's, read the book. Yes. It's well made like enough that it's close enough to the book that it's frustrating, but because they didn't close the deal on it, that's enough for me to say thumbs down to the movie. I maybe like it even less than I did before because of all the baggage that it's now carrying. But at the end of the day, it is a failed adaptation of the novel. And if you watch this movie and you think that you've seen Apt Pupil, you've only seen the first two acts. And mm -hmm. that is a betrayal of the source material. So I'm going to have to go thumbs down on Apt yeah. Pupil. Yeah. Um, Good actors in there, too. Joe Morden makes an appearance as an FBI agent late in the film. He's... He does a good job, but there's nothing distracting about that. So. The filmmaking is strong. I will talk shit about Brian Singer, the man, but not the filmmaker. He can make a mm -hmm. good-looking movie. He's not incompetent. But yeah. uh, the movie has problems.
Jason, thank you for struggling through this with me. I know we've been having a lot of technical issues, but uh, I blame the fall of society. <laughs> uh, the, breakdown, the, the breakdown of the world is making it harder for us to record podcasts, but you and I have stood fast and we've, mm-hmm. we've, we've, we've worked through the conflict and we're ready to rank these six Stephen King films. Nothing can stop us. It's weird because overall I'm not that happy with the quality of these movies in the list, but I did have fun watching them because I'm a Stephen King super freak. And I think that's my go-to about this list. If you're a Stephen King super freak, I guess I recommend all of these movies to a certain degree. (laughs) To a certain degree. (laughs) Um, But I think of all of the Stephen King episodes that we've done so far, this is easily the weakest bill of goods that we've been served so sorry about that brother what was we didn't have dream catcher in here no dream catcher this time it's a relief what was your least favorite of these six stephen king adaptations and why yeah and i again any given day i might change this but uh number six for me storm of the century it just didn't hold my attention it wasn't interesting and when your main villain when I have problems with the performance of the main villain, I have trouble going along with the rest of it. And the protagonist is kind of bland to me. So if I'm relying on uh, these other secondary characters to do it for me, that's, that's not enough. Right. Yeah. Number five for me is Dolan's Cadillac. I feel guilty about it because I want to support Saskatchewan based productions, movie productions. Uh, Slater's performance is worth it. And there's one kind of, uh, fairly good jump scare i guess in there i don't know if jump scare is the right way to put it but one thing that actually kind of worked for me um but the rest of it i i think was stretched out uh way too long and i i think this would have been better as a short film in a, a creep show or type of anthology collection type of thing um number four for me and again as this i was just saying this is the second time every time we do a stephen king show i end up with a list that I come into the show with, and then I end up changing it. I, I think I agree. I think I'm trying really too hard. It might be because I like the source material for App Pupil, uh, but I'm putting App Pupil as number four here. It's very well made. McKellen's good. Renfro's good. Some of the acting's good, but uh, there are problems with it, and maybe I could get by like all of the behind-the-scenes, try to ignore the behind-the-scenes stuff, if it had been true to the source material, but it, it isn't. Yeah. And David Schwimmer's performance is quite distracting. Um, I don't, I'm not sure it's necessarily his fault, but it is quite distracting. Uh, then we go into number three, likely overperforming on pretty much, if you have 200 other guests, uh, Tommy Knockers would probably be number six, but Tommy Knockers is number three for me. I get some sort of strange, guilty pleasure out of this. I, I like how it looks. I recognize that it has a lot of problems, but I enjoy it for what it is. And it might be a little bit of a nostalgia thing because it was so early in my uh, love affair with Stephen King that I that I watched this miniseries and uh, experienced the novel. So. The runner-up for me, again, there are. I'm hoping for an even better version of The Stand, but I think it is, uh, for its ambition and most of what it does, it is worth seeing. If you're a Stephen King fan, I think I like the novel more than you do, uh, but I, I really like the novel, and I, I like that somebody attempted to take on this massive book in this four-part miniseries. Um, 
but it has aged, so that's my only warning. And there's some scenes you're like, Jason, that was number two for you. <laughs> but then there would be some other moments where hopefully you would get some sort of a pleasure out of it. And again, I can't think of a movie other than if we were reviewing, say, Outbreak or Contagion, that would be more appropriate for the time we're living in right now. So yeah. um, seeing the streets of New York portrayed in not quite, but in similar types of ways to how they're portrayed in uh, the miniseries of The Stand is kind of kind of spooky. Number one, shouldn't be a surprise, I put it on my uh, that list of my, my favorite horror movies of uh, the uh, the naughties, as you call them. Yep. Uh, Secret Window. I, 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 I like the psychology of it. I think it's a good attempt at a Hitchcockian type of piece. Uh, I'm a fan, a big fan of the source material as well. Johnny Depp's performance in particular uh, is a big plus for me, as well as uh, not giving a lot of screen time to Maria Bello, but uh, she she delivers the goods in there. Well, I'm pretty sure we just went zero for six. Yes! <laughs> we made zero <laughs> for six, I'm pretty sure, but but tell me if I'm wrong. I, 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 I'm not sure. Okay. Look, I'm glad that the Tommy Knockers worked for you. I mean, they, it didn't work for me. The book yeah, didn't work for me. The show doesn't work for me. The special effects are at time kind of embarrassing. And it's not like so bad it's good that it made me laugh out loud. There's, it's just kind of cringy for me, okay. <laughs> like at times. I didn't get cringed from it, but I, I um, But look, if it works for you, I endorse it. Like, I support that. I have a lot of guilty pleasure movies and like... Somebody needs to like the Tommy Knockers. So yeah, I'm, I'm in. Um, in fifth place, and I'm the fifth and fourth place were the ones that I waffled on. I end up putting Storm of the Century in fifth place, but honestly, it's because of the length. Mm-hmm. It's the length of it that kills it. I think that if it had been like three hours instead of five or whatever it was, that mm-hmm. I have it in in fourth place but instead that's where apt pupil ended up washing up and it's kind of lucky to be getting fourth place like it actually kind of grossed me out and not because of the subject matter but i just couldn't believe it that and especially that comment that he made in the documentary about you know the dark fascination of young adolescents it just like it was so on the nose it just seemed crazy it's the wrong reason to give the movie a thumbs down, though. The reason to give the movie a thumbs down is what you said. It betrays the source material. Yeah. I think if you're going to adapt Apt Pupil, you should fucking adapt Apt Pupil. And they, the, on that level, the movie is a fundamental failure. It's weird that I liked it more in 2004 or whenever it was that it came out than I do now. But mm-hmm. that was true then and it remains true now. The rest of the stuff is what it is, but I can't put it higher than fourth place, and I was tempted to put it lower. <laughs> so there's that. And that's when it gets kind of trickier for me, because as much as like nothing deserved the bottom, nothing deserved the top, I'm going to put Dolan's Cadillac all the way in third position, but I'm going to drop a caveat. It's personal. This is my Tommy Knockers, and I'm almost giving this placement on the basis of the last 30 minutes of this movie Mm -hmm. once it gets to that final confrontation and long conversation between those two leads and slaters in the car and the guys up above and i'm into it but it's taken an hour of movie to get to that point and it may be overperforming in third place 
Also, I have to support Saskatchewan film because we mm -hmm. don't have it anymore. It <laughs> um, depends a little bit more what the story was. Yeah. Like that section is a bit more what the short story was about. So, Secret Window is clearly a better made movie than The Stand. But I, I think for me, like just the scope and scale of the sand, the stand, even though it, it it's hilariously off tune in a few moments, I just love the imagination of the story and the size and the scope and the ambition of the, the it's one of the cases where I almost like the movie more for what it wants to be than what it is. But it is authentic to the source material. It, it does do a really good job of like telling you the bare bones Cole's notes of the stand and yes I want a better version of the stand and yes I'm confident that we're going to get one good um so I'm, I'm hoping that'll be the case but yeah secret window in second place I it, it's kind of gone up in my opinion like watching it mm -hmm. again I really appreciate the film making in it I yeah. just wish that I could be as wrapped up in it as, as David Kep wants me to be. I mm -hmm. wish I could have, you know, somehow forgotten the book before I watched the movie and maybe it would have worked better. But um, I could see around the corners in the movie and I wasn't able to get lost in it. I can recommend the acting and I can recommend the filmmaking, but I can only barely recommend the movie. And that's kind of strange, but it is odd. Yeah, that's yeah. kind of where I wash up. <laughs> so I think yeah. we went zero for Fair six. Enough. Uh, uh, yeah, I celebrated too soon. We went, uh, we agreed in one spot. Oh, where was it? Yedap pupil is fourth, and so did I. Oh, shit. Sorry, yeah. dude. <laughs> That's all right. One of these days, I'll go. It's tough to get zero, six for six, but I've been thinking zero for six is possible. <laughs> Someday, this collision will happen. We'll either go six for six or zero for six. You're just going to have to keep trying. And... Well, it took lead like 50 times I think before he got anywhere in there so <laughs> and I was I, six for six though <laughs> and let's say it one more time for my listeners the shelf shedding movie show hopefully will be on iTunes very soon I, I, I hope so I got you in touch with my tech guy hopefully he can help you figure oh he's some of awesome stuff out. yeah um, hi and, Jeff yeah shout out to my boy Jeffrey and um yeah, I appreciate you doing this. Sorry for all the technical difficulties, and I'm sorry I kind of rushed the close on it. But, um, you know, life gets in the way. Yeah. Thank you so much. Keep healthy. Keep social distancing. And uh, I'm sure Jason Dubray shall again return to ranking. I hope so. <laughs> Thanks, brother. goodness you guys we did it we got through it <laughs> technical difficulties thank you for sticking with me i hope you enjoyed that discussion on stephen king and i hope you have some feedback for me if you do you can send it to rankinreview at gmail.com that's r-a-n-k-n-r-e-v-i-e-w at gmail.com check out the website at rankinreview.ca if you enjoy podcasts which i assume you do you should check out the Welcome to Riverdale podcast, hosted by a friend of the show, Eric, Eric Jurgens. You should check out Cobwebs, a gothic horror podcast. You should probably check out the Terror Table podcast. And uh, as I've mentioned before, that shelf-shedding movie show hosted by Jason DeGray. Check it out. Check it out. Thanks so much. Please help spread the word of Rank and Review. And stay safe, stay healthy.